I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as puppets, demons, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. Hey guys, Jesse here. I see that uh, not many people's downloaded the announcement episode, and I'm not sure if you're hearing this before or after I've had a child, but uh, we're bi-weekly now for the time being. We're recording a bunch of episodes ahead, so I can go ahead and get them edited and in the can and ready to rock. And uh, we're going to go at least two months this way. I noticed my podcast app apparently does not download something flagged as an announcement or trailer automatically, so that, Ah. that might have something to do with it. But yeah, I'll have a newborn baby soon or now, depending on when you hear it. And (laughs) just to make sure we're, you know, can stay on some sort of schedule that I can keep up with for the first couple of months, we're going to pre-record a few episodes starting now. I'm going to edit them ahead and we're going to go bi-weekly for two and a half months-ish. I like going by with you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I always thought of this as a straight podcast. Um, You can't keep it in your pants, keep it in the family. (laughs) Jesus Christ. And then, you know, we're going to reevaluate that then. And if you haven't heard the announcement trailer, I got some stuff in there about wanting some comments. So check it out. But you didn't come here for another announcement. We're here to talk about one of the, I hate to say it, he was one of the big up-and-coming horror movie directors, James Wan, but now he's probably blockbuster movie director guy. He may fully be down that path now, but it's real interesting. Um, It's going to be fun to talk about him because we talked about, let's see, Eli Roth and then... Uh, Mike Flanagan. Yeah. And uh, you had brought it before, like, you know, what do we have now that's like the new generation that's going to take us there and talking about some filmmakers and uh, even production outfits going into like Blumhouse and uh, coming in James Wan seems like the next logical step. Yeah. Um, You'll see in interviews that, you know, he's talked about he wants to make all kinds of stuff. He just, you know, he likes he likes the art. Of, he loves of, film. Of his, film, yeah. His direct quote was, I'm not just a horror fan, I'm a film fan. You know, and he said he wanted to make action movies, romantic comedies. He's made some action movies now. He's made Bank now, too. Yeah, he has. But he's another one of those that started with, you know, by the bootstraps type independent horror filmmaking. And then it's like, oh, let's give you this multi-hundred million dollar project in a pretty short amount of time. It's interesting because we've seen other horror movie directors go from horror to other genres. Peter Jackson, which we've done as well. Yep. And he moved on to bigger movies, but um, not to say that horror films aren't big, great things. We wouldn't be here talking about them. You know, it's like he, he went to huge blockbusters after this and it's just really kind of out of nowhere. If you think about it, it is. And it's, it's neat to see this as a, uh, a reoccurring theme on uh, a few filmmakers. Like you've brought up before. It's like, let's make a horror movie. It's cheap. It's easy. And then what happens after that? Like, it's always, it's, it's an in, I think he really likes, you know, we've talked about atmosphere with, uh, most recently Mike Flanagan. Yeah. And, uh, he seems to get that. Yes. Definitely. Um, uh, a, a different approach in my opinion, but, uh, he really likes to put you for my take on his films. He really wants to take you and say, fuck you. You're going to the seventies and you're going in this haunted house. Like that whole kind of vibe. Definitely. He really puts you on a ride and makes you go for it. And he's got his little trademark things. Like you notice like all his movies always have backwards tracking shots. Yeah. Like that's a thing he likes to do. He's the same actors like a lot of people like to do. You see Patrick Wilson in fucking almost everything. <laughs> I mean he's stuck Patrick Wilson in goddamn Aquaman. I mean, have you seen Aquaman yet? I have it. He's the bad guy in it. So you know oh, like, shit. <laughs> so I mean he sticks him in everything. But uh he did start with horror originally uh, on purpose, just like you were saying, I, I saw in an interview, he was saying like so many of my favorite directors starting out, making a horror movie is easier and cheaper if you don't have the means to make a movie. So I started with it. There you go. 
And really, I mean, it worked for him. I mean, his first release movie was Saul, which did very well. He was always known as like the gore king, you know, and the torture porn starting guy. But the first Saul is not actually gory. There's one almost rough scene. The franchise went on to be gory, but he was just executive producer and name on those. So, yeah, and he's even we talked about it in slashers and he's talked about it in interviews that, you know, like, oh, you helped start torture porn. Like, no, man, I did the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen him say that in a couple interviews that, you know, everybody always thinks what a gory soul is and the first one's not. And he doesn't like being associated with that. And he purposely made Insidious the way he did just to get his name pulled away from that. Yeah, because he's not a gore hound. No, he's not. I believe he said his favorite two horror films are Poltergeist and Jaws. So, I mean, that just kind of lets you know he's a Spielberg fan, apparently. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's a director. He's a writer. I mean, he has a writing partner for the most part. Uh, Lee Winnell has done... A good bit. Well, four out of the six horror movies we're going to talk about today. Yep. Not any of his blockbuster work, obviously. <laughs> Was that a dig? No, 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 no. <laughs> I just meant like, it's just different work. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I saw an interview with Lee Winnell recently, and he was saying, you know, people were asking him if he was going to do another horror movie with James Wan. And he's like, I love to, but the, he's always wanted to make blockbuster action flicks, and now he gets to make blockbuster action flicks. Yeah. I was really hoping he wasn't out of the horror game. I always said he was my favorite current horror movie director. Yeah. And I don't mean like he dethroned John Carpenter or Wes Craven or anything. I just mean like he's currently still making films. And I mean, out of most of the recent horror films, his movies were in my top favorite list in there with Oculus, the Flanagan and stuff. But then he kind of moved on. to I don't want to say greener pastures, but it's kind of like the saying, but like he moved on to making action movies and Flanagan's kept making horror movies. Yeah. And I was really hoping he was going to, maybe make a comeback with it and when they announced conjuring three i was like here we go here we go well he wrote conjuring three and he's producing conjuring three and it's coming out under his production company but he's not directing conjuring three yeah i can't think of the guy's name but it's the guy that directed uh the curse of lola rona which i haven't seen that i haven't either i want to see it i think when the wife first told me about the movie i was like uh the lamia (laughs) you know fucking drag me to hell and stuff isn't that what they call it the curse of the lamia i think so but I haven't seen it. Well, I think it's from his production company, Atomic Monster. Okay. And if he used that director on that movie and then hired him, I just, I feel like Conjuring's kind of his baby. That was his first big money movies. Yeah. Not his first big return on investment, but those actually made good, you know, really big money. And uh, I feel like he would have picked the director he was confident with. Well, with what he's doing now, because, you know, like we got to mention, he's a director, he's a writer, he's a producer. He's a producer on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So he may be, you know, and we don't mean producer name. Like he actually like yeah. on set produces a lot of horror movies, like the entire conjuring verse, like the nun and Annabelle movies. He's exactly. He's present. I don't know. He may settle in there and like, okay, well I'm going to make big budget, you know, action movies or adventure movies or whatever the hell as a director, but I'm still going to keep this going. Cause like you said, with atomic monster, you know, it looks like that's going to be his little, his little pet project. Right. And like we talked about with Flanagan, you know, that he's like, okay, every other year we're going to do these micro budget weekend shoot movies of what I really want to do during downtime. And maybe Which he hasn't done yet. I just want to throw that out there, <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's what we'll see. Maybe we'll see a more behind the scenes approach and start churning out some horror reading and watching interviews with him. I feel like if somebody brought him the right project, yeah, it would be, it would either have to be somebody brings him the right project for full, full blown horror for him to direct, or he needs to have the right nightmare or the right idea. Or maybe Lee Wanell just bugs the shit out of him with a project. That's what I was going to say. I'd like to see him and Lee do another movie together. We're not going to be able to do this episode and not talk about him. I mean, yeah. he's written four out of the six movies. Let's try to dive a bit into his background. He doesn't have like a crazy story like some of the other directors do. 
But I mean, it's definitely worth diving into. He's got like the the Kevin Smith story as far as the film school <laughs> part goes. Yeah, I mean, he was he was born in Malaysia, raised in Perth, Australia. I think he moved there at age seven. Blew my mind the first time I saw an interview of him because he's clearly Chinese. Yeah. And he starts talking and I'm like, you sound like every fucking Aussie guildmate I ever had in a fucking MMO because I play late night. I always play with all of these. He went to film school at MIT, not the big MIT, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Oh, okay. The RMIT. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, he met Lee Winnell there. They became friends. Yeah, I was reading, like, they started talking, and I was like, oh, are you into Dario Argento? Are you into Sam Raimi? And, like, the two of them were like, yeah, this, this is the kind of stuff I dig. And, like, other people were, like, looking down their nose at him. Like, that's not <laughs> art. And they're like, well, fuck you. This is what we're into. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I know he had a student film project called Stygian, which Lee Winnell acts in. I, I'm assuming he's the killer. It looks like there's a clown killer, and he's the clown. It says punk and clown. Please, for the love of God, anyone out there that can provide any more insight into this movie, because I dug and dug trying to find anything to watch on this movie. I didn't find shit. I could find some reviews. Okay. I could not find the movie anywhere. I tried every legal mean to stream or buy it. I scoured the ends of the internet. I went on <laughs> Usenet. I couldn't find it. I'd love to see this film. I mean, I know it's a student project, and it's probably done with like a home camcorder in a backyard but fucking i want to watch it yeah because especially somebody when you see like how he's grown in his filmmaking as we go through these movies like it's really fun to see those humble beginnings because you can go back and start seeing the inkling of what was going to come like mike flanagan's camera movement or like we already talked about a little bit with james wan as he goes on to his movies he starts doing this stylized very fucking long non-cutaway shot like going all the way through a house and out into the backyard and shit like that even in aquaman big budget superhero movie he does a like one shot scene like a big fight scene yeah that, i mean it that, was like 60 takes but he still they did it one shot you yeah know? but yes yeah, so they made that movie and you know you always say guerrilla style filmmaking he won the best guerrilla film at melbourne underground film festival which they call <laughs> muff when Juan and Winnell started working on their screenplay or script for uh, Saw, they actually were using their dreams and fears for inspiration. Yeah. So, like, I mean, that's some fucked up dreams. Like, I, I have scary dreams, but I've never had them, like, specifically with torture devices. No. I'm assuming they mean, like, burned alive and stuff like that. I'm just guessing. <laughs> they could have literally had those dreams. I've watched quite a few interviews with how they got Saw out, and it, it looks like they were trying to just, like, this is our movie, somebody help us make it didn't yeah. work out then they were like we'll sell the script right and we'll just make some money off of that and then we'll make something else didn't work out yeah then they took their money or as james said all of lee's money <laughs> and shot a short starring lee it's basically him stuck in a reverse bear trap they had somebody make yeah it had billy the puppet in it which james wan made himself yeah he didn't buy a dummy and repurpose it he built it from scratch and it was so good that they ended up just using that in the role movie. Yep. Lee Winnell said he, he's never so badly wanted for somebody to check his luggage. Like when he was going to the airport, <laughs> when they flew to America to shot the movie, because he said he wanted him to open it and fucking see the dummy and him have to explain it. Yeah. You know, when you see interviews with James Wan and Lee Winnell together, Lee is talking the entire time for the most part. You would think James yeah. doesn't talk. Lee is a character. Like he can do voices. He he's actually seems like he'd be pretty proficient at acting past what we've seen. Even, yeah. you know, but when you see James Wan alone in an interview, he talks just fine. It's just Lee's, Lee's the talker when they're together. Yeah, he does like to talk. The The real problem they had, though, this was their movie. Lee wanted to act in it and James wanted to direct it. Yep. So they came to America and they met with two guys. I know he said one of them was like an ex-hockey player and stuff. 
And like they pitch the movie and they show the short and the guy's like, you know, you want to act in it? And he's like real tough sounding. And Lee Winnell's like, uh, 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 he's like, you want to direct? And James like, yeah. And he's like, let's do it. And they got offered, you know, the chance to be able to make the movie. And then he said, then they drove like all around Hollywood, like showing the movie and then came right back to the guy. Like they were the only ones that wanted it. Yeah. Well, there was other people that wanted it, but they wanted other people to act and direct in it. Oh, yeah. okay, so okay. This was supposed to be their, their like big thing. And so, I mean, I haven't seen them all yet. I own the Blu-ray box set. I'm saving it for us to do the franchise. I've only seen the first Saw and clips of other Saw movies. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. When, when I was starting them as a projectionist, I saw a couple of them in there. I know about Amanda's storyline just because I played a lot of Dead by Daylight when I streamed on Twitch and stuff. And, yeah. and you know, so I know about her. I want to watch them. I know it's not really the same kind of thing, right? But he did, they really, they did. We're here to talk about James Wan. He did spawn a huge franchise. Oh, yeah. And I know money's not everything, but it is the second most profitable horror franchise of all time, just behind Friday the 13th by $10 million, I think. <laughs> I don't know if that statistic was before Jigsaw came out, and I don't know if Jigsaw technically counts as part of the franchise. From watching all of them, uh, it, it has to be. Just, just from, they just didn't call it Saw Jigsaw? I yeah. Well, they had done fucked up, like Nightmare on Elm Street, because I think the one before it was Saw the Final Chapter. Oh, okay. Or something like that. And it's like, oh, shit, we're going to turn out another one. Let's call it Jigsaw. We can't call it Part 8. But it does come back to the other movies, if I remember correctly. But they took Saw to a film festival. They screened it. They got offers to make the movie. And their representatives or agents or whatever told them they needed to go ahead and lock down and secure a second film in case Saw is a flop. Yeah, have a backup plan while people are interested in you. Yeah, because the movie screened so well that like everybody was already talking about them. Yeah. So that's how dead silence got made. All right. <laughs> and, um, it's really funny. Different interview I saw with Lee and, and James and, uh, Lee said he was talking to James. He said, I got an idea for our next film. It's going to be a drama. It's about a guy getting to know his father after world war two. And his quote was James was like, nah, man, we're doing a script about creepy dolls. <laughs> Him and his dolls. Lee one else is the definitive ventriloquist horror film, you know, and we're going to get in all these movies in details. Yeah. And I can get behind that idea. I mean, they basically felt like they made the movie by gunpoint, right? Yes. They both say it's a miserable experience. Yes. And I mean, they got to, they wrote and directed their own fucking movie, but like they forced it out just to make a movie, you know? Yeah. I saw a quote from Juan L that is like, in hindsight, it's the greatest thing that ever happened, but the worst thing that ever happened because <laughs> one, he learned how, how, it can go wrong. And if you don't write on spec and then people rewrite your shit, cause that was part of studio in involvement was a problem. Right, on right. The film. But, uh, the quote I saw is like, if I could go back to that time, maybe I would just tell them to politely go fuck themselves. Right. right. Or something like that. But you know, where Saul was a successful film, dead silence was just kind of meh. You know, I didn't even know about it until somebody at work was saying, Hey, I just saw this creepy dummy movie. And this was just a couple of years ago. And it's a guy at work that I regularly have to find movies for him because he has no fucking clue what they're called or who's in them. <laughs> and he gave me details. I started looking. I was like, that's a James fucking Wan movie I haven't seen. <laughs> and uh, so he made that. And the same year, he made Death Sentence, which is adapted off of a Brian Garfield novel. And it said it was like the sequel to um, Death Wish, which I don't know if they're referring to the movie or if there's a book with the same name. Yeah, I, I don't know. know. But it was starring Kevin Bacon. Uh, he got Lee Winnell in there in a small role, you know, and, uh, it bombed. It literally made less money than it cost to make it. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> you thought dead silence was bad. And then this happens. And, uh, what's weird, you know, at this point in his career is he comes out swinging yeah. with Saul and it's like, holy shit, what do we have here? And then it's like, oh, and then another, 
all. Yeah. And and when you can look at his career at a, as a whole, you can see that him and a friend made a movie they wanted to make and it did really well. And then they were basically forced by their agents to make a second movie as a backup and they sold it. I'm assuming that night from everything I saw. Yeah. And it felt like a forced movie. It just came out that way. Yeah. And then he made a movie off of somebody else's writing from a book and it just didn't work out. I mean, you would think Kevin Bacon, I mean, call it what you will. He's a big enough actor. You would think the movie could have carried itself at least enough to make back its budget, but I guess not. Yeah. I haven't seen it. And I haven't uh, either. And I don't know. I have no like problems with Kevin Bacon. Like I was talking to the wife the other night, like I need to go back and watch stir of echoes. Cause I oh, haven't seen that since it came out. It's a good movie. Oh, I've, that's one of my watch pretty regular. I love that movie. But like within hollow man, like I'd rather shove shit through a screen door. Um, it could have been good. It was not that I can't get behind that movie. So I don't know, but it's really weird. Cause so we got, we got him on the slump. Yeah. And, and I do want to say James Wan always says it's his art house movie with guns. That quote <laughs> alone makes me want to at least check it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he decided after that, he was going to go on a bit of a break. He said he was ready for a bit of time off to chill, but he was going to use that opportunity to start writing again. Okay. Cause if you look at the timeline, saw came out in what? Oh four. Yeah. And then, Dead Silence came out in 07, but it actually got stuck in production hell for a year, to my yeah. understanding. So it would have been 06. That was just two years later. And then Death Sentence was out the same year. So he had to get Dead Silence in, Death Sentence out at the same time. So a break is probably what he needed. Yeah. And uh, like I probably should have said this at the beginning. Like usual, we're covering director's credits. Yeah. Yeah, we'll mention some other stuff. But he didn't direct anything again until 08, which was just the next year. But it was just a trailer for the horror game dead space yeah which fucking awesome game i don't know if i particularly saw his trailer i'm gonna have to check that out but it's a fun <laughs> game in 2010 though him and lee Winnell teamed back up and wrote insidious yep which that movie was on a shoestring budget and made quite a significant amount of money yeah that movie made scary money and it <laughs> did after what happened to saul he he didn't want to see that happen again to something that him and lee were creating so he wanted to do it independently to have full control um, and to separate him a little bit from the gore assault. Yeah. Because like we said earlier, he's not a gore hound. He doesn't like being tied to that. He likes the darker kind of creepy movies, naturally creepy movies. And he, he wanted to have that. And Orrin Pelly, right. He produced it from paranormal activity. So I remember all the trailers. I had to go see it. <laughs> I remember the, the trailer came out and it was like, from the people that brought you paranormal activity in Saul. And I'm like, how can this be bad? I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> it was sold in four hours to Sony at the Toronto International Film Festival. Oh, damn. Which has to be like some sort of record. I mean, he wanted it to be like, he said, Six Sense, The Others, David Lynch films, you know. And yeah. the movie, without having gore and without having like crazy CGI all over the place, it really is just kind of like atmospherically creepy. Yeah. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to use that right now. <laughs> and you definitely can see the poltergeist inspiration. <laughs> Big time. I'll get into that when we get to the movie. But uh, they did some interviews after that because they started getting some traction because of Insidious. Yeah. And James Wan said that him and Lee Winnell are not just horror fans. They're film fans. And he would love to do action movies, romantic comedy. It's a good script. He wants to do it. Exactly. And, um, and then, you know, some more time passed and we hit. 2012 and he was actually negotiating to direct the reboot of MacGyver and it was gonna be a movie and I don't I don't know everybody's age in here but MacGyver was the shit when I was a kid growing up yeah dude when I was a kid I watched the shit out of that and like I can remember being young and in the shower not trying to get anybody all hot and bothered right now 
and like washing my hair, singing, you know, the theme song, which there's no words, but, you know, singing the tune and shit and like asking my friends to call me MacGyver as my nickname. I'll do you one better. I remember when you had the MacGyver haircut. Okay, that wasn't by choice. That was that that's over here. Like I like the show, but I wasn't like I didn't go somewhere at like eight years old and be like, give me the Richard Dean Anderson. <laughs> I just kind of always said because you were like, look at my MacGyver haircut. I remember that because <laughs> that's what my mom pointed out as because I didn't want it. <laughs> I'm not a parent, but, you know, you're trying to get your kid to do something. and It's like Spider-Man eats his veggies, you know, or whatever. The right, shit, right. You know what I mean, it fell through, though. <laughs> Went off on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. It fell through, though. And, you know, he's uh, he's a few years older than us, like six or seven years older. So okay. if he, when we watched MacGyver, we were like kids watching it. So he would have been like a teenager watching it. It kind of makes sense. It was probably like a dream job. Yeah. Didn't work out. They did end up making a TV show. He's the executive producer of the TV show. And I believe he wrote and pro- like actually produced the pilot episode. Okay. I haven't watched it because I don't want to ruin MacGyver. That's my thing. I remember seeing commercial. Well, two things. I remember seeing the commercial and I'm like, that's not Richard Dean Anderson. That's number one. It's like he went to Stargate and never came back. Um, <laughs> the other thing being fucking MacGruber. <laughs> so that like kind of ruined everything. Oh, I still say like MacGyver this, MacGyver that yeah. for rigging something. Like that's just how I say it. This guy once made a CD player with some chicken wire in his mom's vibrator. <laughs> I forget which fucking kevin smith movie that's it (laughs) jesus but uh after macgyver didn't work out he decided to go back to horror i guess and i started working on his next big project the warren files without lee winnell yep which was about ed and lorraine lauren because they have like so many cases that they say they've worked on or they did work on and may or may not have been supernatural or whatnot yeah and i'm glad uh, you put it that way (laughs) and they changed the name of the conjuring, but we're going to cover those movies in yeah. detail later. And they're fucking awesome movies. And those were huge successes yeah. compared to his previous work and compared to most horror films, actually. Yeah. And this is in now. One thing I do want to point out is this is in that time period. I guess this is more towards the end of it where I bitch about all these fucking PG 13 horror movies where we're seeing our movies. The reason for them being R is weird, but it, it was good to see that happening. I actually saw him talking about, the rating system and some interviews because like they were kind of sick of the crappy PG horror movies themselves and they made saw, yeah, you know, and saw he's, they both have said that it was a written as a thriller. James Wan actually said it was a thriller that he shot like a horror film. Yeah. And, uh, and then when we hit the insidious movies, are those actually rated R in conjuring? They're not, are they? Those I have to look. I just, I just remember the conjuring the first one, at least being given an R because it was just too scary. Like the MPAA actually cited that as their reasoning. <laughs> and see, I actually didn't check on the ratings, but to me, I was thinking Insidious and Conjuring movies were rated PG thirteen for some reason. They may or may not be. I don't know. Yeah, there's not it, there's not heavy language in them. There's not a lot of sex, or there's no sex stuff. Yeah. There's no language, no sex, no heavy violence, no heavy gore. Um, I mean, hell, fucking uh, Dead Silence is probably gorier than all four of the Insidious and Conjuring movies. Yeah, I mean, I would have to look at the ratings. I kind of feel like an idiot that I didn't check, but there's just nothing about them that makes them scream R. And to me, that was kind of cool in my head because he could actually make good PG-13 horror movies. <laughs> they yeah. weren't like cheesy kid movies. And that's a that's another thing if you think about his movies. He There's a family dynamic in all of them. Like, you made me think of it when you said, like, no sex. It's because it's almost always somebody having to save a kid. It is, and it, and it puts them in a position where they're approachable movies. Yeah. And this kind of brings us back to Poltergeist. And that's like watching his movies. I'm like fucking Poltergeist and Amityville. Poltergeist right. and Amityville. Um, Amityville's got sex and gore in it though. 
Um, <laughs> so I understand that, but no, it's, it's, it's really approachable. And actually this is kind of funny. I've always tried to figure out how did he get to furious seven and Aquaman? And it's really hard. I just think it just happened. There's no like magic story, but I did find an Aquaman interview with him where he's saying that like, when he was making the first Conjuring movie, that's when he started contacting Warner Brothers about like, hey, I want to make a superhero movie. Like trying okay. to get his name out there. <laughs> and I mean, I guess that just paid off in the end. So he just fucking went after it. It wasn't yeah. a, hey, son, let me bring you in here. But if you think about it, that was, if it was while he was making the Conjuring, it's like five or six years before he actually got to do Aquaman. So, True. But right after the Conjuring, he started working on Insidious Chapter 2, brought Lee back in again, right? Yep. And uh, he said he wanted to be hands-on with the franchise and kind of like shepherd it in and keep it on track because Saul turned into something completely different than what he made. Yeah. And he didn't want that to happen again. So um, I felt like he did a good job of that. I don't think the second Insidious movie is as scary as the first one, like kind of jump scary-ish. Yeah. But it's got some cool plot elements that start popping up with like the crossover stuff. It's kind of like when we start talking about later paranormal activity movies. Yeah. There's a little bit of parallels, I think, in some of these films. There is. So what was next? I guess Furious 7? Yeah, he actually started uh, negotiating with Universal Pictures for Furious 7 while making Conjuring and Insidious 2, or while releasing them. So they both came out in 2013, I think. I'll have to scroll down further in my notes, but they came out pretty close together, I thought. Oh, uh, The Conjuring and Insidious Chapter 2? Yeah, they came out the same year. Yeah, both of those, yeah. Which is mind-blowing to me that he made both those fucking movies at the same time. I wonder how much more Lee Winnell was doing, though, because he directed the third one. See, and that was a joke I was going to make was, do we start seeing some of that Spielberg Hooper stuff happen <laughs> in that movie? No, I've definitely seen behind the scenes of Insidious 2 with James Wan working on it. But, yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Could have been a little bit, a little dash of it. <laughs> but anyways, Furious 7 ended up being the most profitable and critically acclaimed Furious movie. Even though I think this is when Paul Walker died when they were making it, right? See, I, and that's the thing is I kept up going back to the first one because, you know, I had my Firebird and shit like so. Cars, I'm in. You had an Eclipse also after Fast and hey, Furious. Hey, I still have that Eclipse. You do, you do. Too bad a fucking tree fell on it. But anyways. Holy shit. Yeah. But I lost interest in the movies after about four because it went a different direction. And for the franchise, obviously, it's been a very good direction as a whole. But I have not seen this one. And that came out in 2015, I think. But he would have had to have started working on it in 2013. So think about that, man. You're releasing The Conjuring, which is like your first... You, he created a fucking universe off The Conjuring by accident. Yeah. He released Insidious 2, which was the sequel to his second big movie, and it was bigger than Saul. Maybe not the whole franchise, but it was bigger release than the first Saul was. Yeah. Meanwhile, negotiating and planning for Furious 7. Yeah. Because the director's job starts really early in pre-production. That's because there's going to be so much goddamn post-production. So in 2014, he like agreed to direct it because okay. they approached him, but he was contractually obligated to do it. That's right. That's right. But that's also the same year, 2014, is when he launched Atomic Monster, his production company, okay. which is a division of New Line Cinema, coincidentally. I think they produced Conjuring 2, actually. I'd have really? to look. Yeah. I know they did Lights Out, the Annabelle movies, The Nun. I think The Curse of La Llorona is another one. Okay. And oh, I know for a fact Conjuring 3 is going to be on there. So Yeah. And the new Annabelle? What about it? Yeah. Okay. And the new Annabelle, he actually wrote, I think. Okay. So I'm, I haven't seen any of the Annabelle movies yet, but I'm going to watch them. I hear the second one's a lot better than the first one. It's, it's weird. And I know he didn't direct those, but like getting into this wheelhouse yeah. for me, it's like, I like the sequels better than the first ones. It's okay. It's really friggin' weird. Everything I've read was the first one was fucking terrible. And the second one is an awesome movie, but you can't watch the second one without watching the first one. 
And then if he's making the third one, or at least, you know, wrote it, yeah, I want to see it. I know it has the warns in it. Because it's going to tie into yeah, the Conjuring stuff. That's what's so. going to be neat to seeing those come together. I want to know what Conjuring 3 is about, like which big case it is, because they've already done two out of three of their big cases. Their third would be Amityville. Yeah, and let's not do that. I don't know. I might would want to see it, but it's not James Wan directing it, so it's different. Yeah. But anyway, he launched that company, and, and to my understanding, he basically gets first dibs on modest budget horror films. Okay. And it said comedies as well. I'd have to see him make a comedy. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see him make a comedy and then see if he can do a comedy horror. I guess next we jump to 2016 when Conjuring 2 actually came out. Yeah. It was also a large box office horror film. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see a pattern with that here. And I mean, we like indie movies and horror movies. So obviously money is not everything to us is a grading factor, but you start noticing a pattern with this guy. Yeah. And you get to see what's the general population doing because horror fans are always going to be drawn to horror. I watched Death House because I like horror <laughs> one hell of a regret. But still, when you look at numbers like what happened on these movies, that tells you that the general population has been reached. And that's a totally different thing. Speaking of Death House, I would love to read the text that Josh, <laughs> Josh's wife actually sent to me. It wasn't, it wasn't even Josh. We're on like a little group text. Where we talk about horror movies. All right. Here's what Josh's wife said. Death House is atrocious. Do not waste an hour and a half of your life, Jesse. It's too late for us. Save yourself. <laughs> but after the release of Conjuring 2 in 2016, James Wan took another leap out of horror, and he finally got to fulfill a dream of his and uh, make a large action movie, which I guess for your seven was an action movie, but he got to make a fucking superhero movie with <laughs> Aquaman in 2018. Yeah, which I, you know me, I have not seen this. <laughs> I watched it like, here's the thing. The DC movies are not as good as the Marvel movies. I know you don't watch those, and I might even piss some people off saying that, but they don't do as well financially. Yeah. They're always like split 50-50, to be honest, on like liked versus disliked, whereas the Marvel movies, there's a split, but it's there's a large version. Yeah, of yeah more like an 80-20 or... Yeah, yeah. And one of the main things that the DC movies get flack for is they're so dark and like depressing. Yeah. Aquaman's not, and it's made by a horror director. I don't know what fucking happened. <laughs> the, the horror director who likes dark sets and throwing in weird punches of crimson red as his highlight i really think that kind of like is credit to him as a director though it's like he knows what he has to go for for each movie it's like he has a shtick that he's stuck on well exactly because that shit gets stale (laughs) and um i always i was trying to find some deep story on how he somehow got this large you know contract or whatever the fuck you want to call it the, to be able to make Aquaman. Yeah. I couldn't find anything other than him saying that like when he started making conjuring one, he started approaching them and I can tell you what happened. He, he's pretty much one of the most profitable directors in Hollywood when you're talking about return on investment. Yeah. Okay. And like I said, money's not everything, but I just want to kind of break some of this down. Okay. <laughs> so this guy contacted you to make a superhero movie and you just kind of put him on the back burner. Right. In his career, he made Saul in 04 for $1.2 million. And it made 104 worldwide. Okay. And these are just box office numbers for get home video and all that shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And also these are rounded up or down. You know, like, I mean, like if it was like 0.7 something (laughs) that I've rounded, you know what I mean? Like I just made it real basic. Dead Silence No. 07. This is where it's a little weird. Cost 20 mil to make. Made 22.2. Fail. Right. Death Sentence cost 20 to make. Made 17 mil. Fail harder. (laughs) Failed much harder. (laughs) Then you get a little three year break there. And you made Insidious for one and a half million dollars, which is fucking nothing, especially 2010 movie money. I know. And the movie, like, can you say a bad thing about the special effects anywhere in the movie? No. Yeah. 
and it it made fucking ninety seven million dollars off that budget. Yeah, that's when some ears pricked up. So I mean, if you look at Saul and Insidious, those are two movies that pretty much made a hundred million dollars off of. Not, I mean, they're almost ten times the investment, right? Yep. And then he made Conjuring in twenty thirteen for twenty mil, and it made three hundred nineteen million dollars. That was that is a very smart roll of the dice right there, especially the way you're showing this is you know or telling this is like one point two million, one point five million. Let's throw the guy twenty million and see what happens. Well, that's not quite accurate though, because they threw him twenty million for Dead Silence and Death Sentence. Yeah, but he got to come. I'm talking about coming back to something in horror after seeing what happened after Insidious. Ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Same year as The Conjuring, he made Insidious 2 for $5 million, which is insane that that movie made that much money and they only gave him $5 million to make it again. I know. That is wild. <laughs> and it made $162 million. So it was not as much as The Conjuring, but it was more than the first Insidious movie. Yeah. Which meant people were coming back. Exactly. I don't know how he got The Fear 7. I know he was on like a short list. Okay. directors after the guy that made the first all the other ones you know decided not to make another one yeah but they approached him and it could have just been because of his return on investment i wanted that there was one number i forgot to look up when i was doing all this sorry guys like with the baby coming i'm a little short on time for, for <laughs> some of this research that i do i wanted to see how much of a budget the other fast and the furious movies had oh okay but they gave him 190 million dollars which to me doesn't seem like a lot for a blockbuster movie Maybe it's because I'm used to looking at Star Wars and Marvel movie budgets, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's like two, three hundred million dollars, right? Well, I guess that is about two hundred million dollars. Yeah. But it made one and a half billion dollars. Yeah, that is nuts. So <laughs> they gave him 190 million, and he made them 1.5 billion. And I'm sure this is when Warner Brothers is like, didn't that guy call us about a superhero movie? And yeah, somebody and, got a fucking email, and they're like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And and then he made Conjuring two after that, so like he had another horror movie. And it cost $40 million to make, so they doubled his budget from the first one. And I got to check. I can't remember if this was an Atomic Monster movie. If it came out in 2016, it'd have to be, unless he was... Unless that was in the works at the time. Yeah, yeah, but I Oh, but New Line Cinema made him make it, and Atomic Monster is a branch of New Line Cinema. So yeah, that was go. probably the first Atomic Monster movie. But it made $320 million, which is almost exactly what the first one made, but... That's for a horror movie? That's a lot of money. Yeah. Like, horror movies don't make $300 million. Exactly. But it's really funny, like, I've seen different interviews with him over different time, and there's one of them I couldn't find, but I read before we had the podcast, right? And it was, he he had the opportunity to make a Warner Brothers movie, and they're like, what hero do you want to do, right? And I wish I could cite this, but I can't, I couldn't find the video again. <laughs> and obviously there were some constraints, he couldn't do Batman, because yeah. Ben Affleck at the time was writer, director, and actor for Batman, which uh-huh. he's got out of a lot of that. And I uh, couldn't do Superman, because Zack Snyder's already doing those. Yeah. Wonder Woman was already promised out and uh i don't know what all of his options were but he called him back and said aquaman and they started laughing at him and you know the guy who talks to fish (laughs) and he was like they're like why do you want aquaman he's like well the bar is really low i can't mess (laughs) this up so he was thinking like coming as a horror movie director that happened to get to do one action movie i'll do this because he's fully aware of all the aquaman memes on the internet like he knows aquaman was a joke he went in and he fucking did it. And he even he threw in um, a stingray like Easter egg in the movie because Edgar Wright emailed him or tweeted him or something. And he's like, I bet you can't throw this in there. And he did it just to win a bet with him. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and stuff like that. So like he still had fun with it doing it. But like he he knew that like if I'm going to do this huge comic book movie, I'm going to do one that like has he, he wanted to be able to do an origin story that hadn't been done in the ground. Yeah. Right. And 
there was no more. He even fit the fucking costume in. Like, Jason Momoa ends up in, like, the orange and green costume in the movie, and it works. <laughs> you could tell, though, in some of the interviews I saw, I don't feel like he, he's at home doing, like, heavy special effects on everything. Yeah. Which I'm sure you had to deal with that a bit on Furious 7, but he was saying, like, everything had special effects. Like, there's even a scene where Aquaman and his dad are, are eating in a cafe, and it was an actual cafe, but they, like, blue-screened out all the windows so they could put their own street in. I mean, the movie, it's underwater. Two-thirds of the movie is underwater. Yeah. Thought I had heard that he contacted James Cameron, like, how did you do the abyss? They shot that shit underwater. That's it, how they did it. <laughs> right, right. And, and and this and that. But they did it with special effects, or with visual effects. They yeah. did a good job. Like, he said they put wigs on people. I, we're never going to talk about this movie in the podcast. This is all a chance. <laughs> so, I love special effects stuff. Like, he said he put wigs on them, but the wigs were pulled back in ponytails, and they had, like, the mocap cubes on them. And he's like, the reason why... I put the wigs on there and not just the mocap dots is because you can't like CGI hairline, right? It looks like shit. Yeah. So that way they'd have the hairline in and stuff. Cause he wanted to make it look like their hair was flowing the whole time. And it, it looks like they're fucking underwater the whole time. They got, did a good job on that. Okay. But yeah, very special effects heavy said. The cool thing is when you have industrial light and magic working though, is if you have a good take of a movie, but like a boom mic or a shadow shows up into it. I'll I'm gonna pull that shit out for you in a heartbeat and you get to keep your take. <laughs> yeah, gone are the days of having to rotoscope that shit out. Um, he did say he did like a one it's not a one take, but like a one shot scene. There's a there's a big fight scene with Aquaman's mom at the beginning, which is Nicole Kidman. He said it was like sixty takes, right? But it's it's one shot okay. on the take they kept. And she's whooping ass all the way through this house. He said that they built like the house and there was no roof on it and they used it's called a spider web cam. And you program where it goes, and it just fucking pings around the room and spins and flips and goes up and down. Yeah. And he's like, I have it stopping like millimeters from people's faces, you know, <laughs> stuff like that for close-ups. So, you know, you could tell he kind of had fun with it. And I am I watched it. Like, I'm not a DC fan. I never have been. Not the comics, not the movies for the most part. Even I still fucking see all the movies when they come out. I give them a shot. <laughs> and uh, it was a fun movie. Like, I was curious to see, like. James Wan, one of my favorite horror directors, like, what did he do with the world's shittiest superhero? <laughs> it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. And Jason Momoa, he fucking, I mean, he plays it as just like, he's Cal Drogo from Game of Thrones, but drinking whiskey and beating ass and swimming underwater. He fucking plays it perfect. Well, like you were saying, it's like, the bar's pretty low, so I can't fuck this up. And I mean, what what's the worst thing previous to that? And for me, it'd have to be Ghost Rider. <laughs> like, all you gotta do is be better than Ghost Rider. I cannot wait, now that Marvel has the rights back to... Ghost Rider, since they bought Fox, I want to see a good Ghost Rider movie. Yeah. I mean, he was one of my favorite comic characters, like, when I was a kid. I don't even fucking know much about him anymore because those movies were so bad. Yeah, and that was the only comic book character I ever got into as a kid. So there's been more than one Ghost Rider, obviously, and the second Ghost Rider, I guess technically it'd be the third Ghost Rider, is on the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show, and they actually did it really well. Okay. And... They just greenlit a Ghost Rider movie, I think, so I think it's using that guy, so we'll, we'll kind of see how that goes, but... It'd no be cool shit. to see it because it's it's a darker kind of thing. There's yeah. actually another James Wan dark comic book tie-in, but I'm gonna save that at the end for future works. <laughs> okay. This is the last bit I want to say on like money and backstory, and then we'll we'll get into the the meat of the episodes, I guess. But you know, I said that Furious Seven made one and a half billion, and oh, I didn't even say Aquaman. I don't think. Oh no no no, you didn't. Whoops. Aquaman it was 160 to 200 million to make, and it made 1.1 billion dollars. Let's see. Since 2013, he's on a roll. Well, the interesting thing is he's had two movies make over a billion dollars, which puts him in like kind of an exclusive director's club. Oh, really? And it's crazy. That this is the Saul Conjuring Insidious guy is in this club now. So you got James Cameron. I'm going to try to do this in chronological order. Okay. As close as I can. Titanic and Avatar. 
Okay, they each broke a billion dollars. Think about Titanic, though, how long ago that was. Yeah. Oh, it, oh, it, it broke that in box office? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no shit. Michael Bay for Transformers Dark of the Moon and Transformers Age of Extinction. Mm. Everybody already knows how I feel about Michael Bay. Chris Nolan for The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, which are fucking awesome Batman movies. I know I said I don't like DC stuff. I haven't seen them. I've been told, okay, the wife. She's not big into all that stuff, but she's always been a big Batman fan. And uh, she's like, no, the Dark the Dark Knight movies are actually good. You need to watch them. So Batman and Joker are like the only DC characters I actually like. I'm sure part of it's that Batman, the animated series that came out where kids. See, and that's the thing, man. That was that was the shit, man. Like, yeah. I even put up with gargoyles because <laughs> that shit came out afterwards. But anyway, so, you know, wasn't a surprise to me that Christopher Nolan was on there. Yeah. Peter Jackson, which we've talked about in podcast four, but it was for Lord of the Rings, Return of the King and The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. I was really surprised bad taste wasn't on there. <laughs> I'm really surprised that that many people went. Actually, I'm not surprised that many people went to see The Hobbit. We've poked fun at it before, though. First Hobbit, though, sold really well because nobody had seen a Hobbit movie yet. Exactly. Yeah. So, Joss Whedon, which is really cool to see him on there because he's yes. the Buffy and Angel and Firefly guy to me. But, you know, Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron. Don't forget Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. I was just saying, like, the roots, like, how far back he goes. And uh, this this is the only name I had to look up. <laughs> Pierre Coffin, but it was for Minions and Despicable Me 3. No shit. So each one of those made over Bill. Okay. And then we got the Russo brothers, which is two guys, but makes sense. Marvel again with Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. And then James Wan with Furious 7 and Aquaman. Well, that's cool. I mean, we've got, you know, what's really interesting about this is that it seems to make sense because just looking at these directors, they run the gamut. Yeah. And uh, the films, to a certain extent, run the gamut. Well, James Cameron has done some horror-esque and sci-fi stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. Michael Bay, I'd have to look, but I'm sure he did somewhere in there. He's Chris, done some horrifying things. <laughs> Christopher Nolan started out like indie movies, right? And then came into this. So, yeah. like, like Memento's a good fucking movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah. Peter Jackson, we've definitely duh. covered horror. Joss Whedon. <laughs> Again. Duh. Um, I don't know about Pierre Coffin. Not the Russo brothers, but then James yeah. Wan. So you got you got several people on this list that started out doing indie or horror films. Yeah, that's crazy thinking about it that way, like up against those. But James Wan's even on a slightly more exclusive level if you look at this list. Michael Bay, one franchise. Christopher Nolan, the same one franchise. Peter Jackson, one franchise. Joss Whedon, one franchise. Pierre Coffin, one franchise. Russo brothers, one franchise. Only James Cameron and James Wan broke a bill on movies that aren't related. Ah. That's pretty cool. You know what I think is hilarious about this? Why? Because is, isn't there a South Park episode called Raising the Bar that's mm. making making fun of James Cameron? <laughs> <laughs> I may be wrong on that. I may have to look that up. James Cameron is always crazy to me when you go to his IMDb and look at his director's credits. He hadn't made that many movies. They're yeah. just all good. Yeah, it's just like, I got this. Just give me five years and you'll have your movie. Dude, he has four more Avatar movies coming out. Four? Yeah, he already shot all of them, too. They're done. We'll just have to see how it goes. You know I still haven't seen the first one, right? Oh, I, was, I haven't seen it, dude. You can come over and watch it with me and the kids one day. Hell no. Isn't that movie like three and a half hours long? It's a good movie. You don't want to hang out with me and the kids for three and a half hours? I didn't say that. I'm just saying. Like, I'll watch Gone with the Wind or some shit, but I don't know about Avatar. I was a projectionist when it came out, and I saw that movie. I think it was like. 12 to 15 times in theaters because oh, everybody would hear about it and they could see the movie for free if they came in with me. Uh, so I'd get phone calls. Even my mom called me. Hey, I got to see this <laughs> Avatar movie. And so I had to just keep going back and watching it. Put a bad taste in my mouth. 
until I went with the kids to Disney World in October last year. And Animal Kingdom has Pandora, like the planet from Avatar built yeah. there with the rods. I was completely on board again. <laughs> and well, and I'd never played it for Aiden. I didn't know if it was going to be a little too scary for him or whatever. And he was like pumped. So then we came immediately back and I got to watch it. So. Okay. Did you ever think we'd talk about a Fast and the Furious movie and an Aquaman movie on a fucking podcast? No, but that's part of what's <laughs> making this fun and going into backstories on directors. Because uh, we talk about this, you know, when we're prepping for shows and whatnot. And uh, doing directors is kind of hard because... We do franchises too. And it's like, well, do we not cover this guy? Cause we want to talk about this franchise or yada, yada, yada. And there's going to, there's overlap. It's already happened. It's fixed to happen again, but it's much more fun. I like learning more about directors like Eli Roth. I was like, eh, he's all right. And like, we finish him and I'm like, I respect this guy now. Right. You brought up Mike Flanagan and I'm like, who? And they're like the Oculus guy. And I'm like, yeah, that was a good movie. Did he do anything else? And like going back and watching the movies again, it's like, oh shit, I like this guy. This is the same way, because we're going to get to a couple of these movies that I'm not a fan of, but I still like this guy. Yeah, I, I honestly, I like doing directors and categories more than I like doing franchises. Yes. I think it's because I don't like, I'm not a sequel guy for the most part. There's movies from James Wan that yeah. like are going to break my, I don't like sequels rule, but there are good sequels can be made. It's just not done often. Franchises are usually shitty all over the place, yeah. made by different people, and I just don't always like doing them. But it's like, we can't just cover the first one. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> Josh won't let me. No. I guess it's time to move on to the movies. And uh, we got to start with James Wan's first feature-length film, made in 2004, Saw, made with Lee Winnell. They wrote it together. Yep. Lee Winnell stars in the movie. As we said earlier, it was originally a short film. It wasn't intended to be a short film, but it was to shop it around. They were wanting to make a thriller movie. And really, you kind of get that like a long came a spider type vibe watching the movie like i get that right yeah but it definitely has the horror elements which get expanded on further like you know you see a crazy fucking pig person attack somebody that's that's nothing thriller about that guys yeah i wonder if that was a nightmare like they could have been one of the nightmare elements well and that's going through these and like reading and watching interviews it's neat where you start seeing stuff getting sprinkled right right and it, it's i mean this had to be hard to do like for your first movie or maybe, I mean, I guess if you can do it, you can do it. But the, the movie is different stories told from different points of view in different timelines. Yeah. And to me, that seems like it'd be a hot fucking mess for a director to do. And he did it for his first film. Well, a hot mess to do and a hot mess to sell. Cause like, what is it at its core? It's two guys in a shitter. Yeah. Like, really. <laughs> I, I thought it was really interesting. He said the movie came out on a Friday. And it was greenlit for a sequel on Monday. Oh, shit. And that happened. Like, there's another movie that we talked about in the past that that happened on. Okay. I don't remember what it was, that, but it doesn't happen that often, you know. Oh, it's Friday the 13th. It was greenlit in like two or three days. Yeah. yeah. Another interesting fact. I thought this was fucking awesome. I think I said it earlier, but James Wan actually made the Billy Puppet. Yeah. I mean, it's just great. They tried to, like, replicate it for the actual movie. And like, fuck it. Let's just use the one you got. Exactly. Because he didn't have a whole lot of money making that movie either. And I mean, it had Carrie Elways and fucking Danny Glover in it. Like, there's no way they did it cheap. They had to be most of the budget. I don't know, man. I think I'd have to go look. I think at that point in his career, Danny Glover was probably just happy to get work. Eh, you also got to wonder how percentages and shit on kickbacks and stuff are, or promising you other movies from the same studio. Eh. Eh, I don't know. Like politics and shit. A couple more, I thought, fun facts, and I'll get into the, the meat of the movie. But the, uh, the entire bathroom scene was shot in chronological order. Okay. So part of it was continuity because the dirt, the blood, they thought it'd be exactly. kind of hard to replicate. Another interesting thing. This was a James Wan decision. He used controlled, steady shots for Lawrence. And then he made the camera very shaky for Adam. 
And ah. it, was, it was supposed to like make you feel the personality from yeah. the point of view. And James Wan has to be a Black Christmas fan because the puppet's name is Billy and Zepp's eye peeking out of the closet was like straight up taken out of Black Christmas. And he even said it was like it was inspired by that. Oh, okay. He had to do a throwback, which is cool because Black Christmas is not a slasher movie that gets talked about a lot by people, which we covered in the fucking first episode of the podcast ever. Yeah. You know, so it's like cool to see somebody reference back to that. But in your movie, we have our first character introduced, very fucking confused. He wakes up in a dark room (laughs) and he's screaming for help and he's answered by a calm voice that's like, it's no use. I've already tried. Right. Yeah. So we're introduced to Adam and God, I'm going to go back and forth. He's called Dr. Gordon. He's called Lawrence and he's fucking called Larry in the movie. So I'm going to call whatever I wrote him at that point in time. (laughs) But uh, Lawrence finds a light switch, turns it on. And they're both chained up in this nasty-ass bathroom, and there's a dead body on the floor with his brains blown the fuck out, gun in one hand, and a tape recorder in another. Yeah, and like, neither one of them can reach it. Like, what sin did I commit to be here? <laughs> I remember when I saw this movie, I screened it. Like, it was fucking, I was like, what am I watching? Right? That was interesting. <laughs> um, they both have amnesia. They don't know how they got there. And uh, Adam immediately starts checking to see if his kidneys are missing. <laughs> and he, like, yelling across him. He's like, do you see anything? Do you see anything? Well, yeah, and he's like, you're fine. And he's like, how do you know? And he's like, because I'm a surgeon or <laughs> something like that, you know. But it's a good scene. And Leo Nell, he's actually a great comedic actor. Like, even in the interviews with him and James Wan, he fucking has me rolling the whole time. Yeah. I can't believe we didn't even talk about the drop bears, right? <laughs> yeah. And see, and that's the thing with him. Um, when I don't like him serious. I just don't. Not that he's bad. Yeah, I think he plays Adam great in this fucking movie. But he's got some comedy to it. Exactly. But while they're trying to figure out a way out of the room, like beating on the walls and banging on the chains, like that would fucking even work, they each figure out they have a tape in their pocket that says, play me on it. And Lawrence has a key, and he tries it for his locks, and they don't work. He throws them to Adam. They don't work for his locks either. Yeah. But he kind of just, like, tosses the key. I would have fucking held onto that shit just in case. I know, know? right? And uh, and, and I might have spoke too soon, but they noticed there's a tape recorder in the dead man's hand and uh, Adam's trying to get it and he's like trying to sling his shirt for it and he ends up pulling the stopper out of the bathtub because it has a chain on it to give him some more reach to get the, the tape player and he gets it right yeah. and doesn't doesn't that event oh it comes back to yeah. Bite on yeah yeah a um, <laughs> couple interesting behind the scenes things I forgot to even say at the beginning one at the film festival people were pointing out that when he got the tape recorder out of it was Tobin Bell on the floor that's actually there's three interesting things they couldn't afford a dummy and Tobin Bell's not in the movie that much, so they actually had him just lay there the whole time. No shit. So it's actually Tobin Bell on the floor, and when they screen the movie trying to sell it, somebody pointed out, his, I guess his fingers move a little bit when they drag it away, and people are like, oh, that's clever how you like gave a clue that he was alive. By the way, spoilers, guys. I've got to start saying that at the beginning of the yeah, episode. Yeah, we always forget that shit. But uh, that he's alive at the end. And that wasn't their intention of accident. Yeah. And they couldn't reshoot it, so they just fucking cut the scene out. You see him, like, go for the tape recorder, and then he has it, right? But Adam plays his tape, and, you know, it says, like, you're in the room that you might die in, right? So it's really fucking ominous. Cool fucking voice talking. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the voice tells him he's pathetic, and he's always hidden the shadows, and um, are you going to do something in your life, or are you going to die today, right? And then Lawrence wants to wants him to throw him the fucking tape recorder. He's like, no, I'm not going to throw the tape recorder or break the fucking thing, you know, it's like those on the tape, which is kind of smart actually. Yes. And, um, same voice kicks on and tells Dr. Gordon that he's, which is Lawrence. So like I said, I'm gonna go back and forth on his name that, uh, he spends every day at work telling people they're going to die. And that today is the day he's going to take Adam's life. And he has until six o'clock to do it. Right. Yep. Um, the voice says the man in the floors had so much poison in his blood that he could only comfort himself basically by taking his own life and blew his brains out. Right. So clearly this guy likes the, 
play games, right? Yeah. And he says X marks the spot, and then he's going to kill Dr. Gordon's wife and daughter if he doesn't kill Adam by six o'clock. Yeah. Let the game begin. Lawrence wants the tape recorder thrown back to him so he can play the tape back. But he, he keeps playing the end of his recording over and over again, and I never actually can really catch it. Maybe it was just the headphones I was wearing. I don't watch Saul on the TV in case the kids walk in the room. Gotcha. But uh, there's a, the voice like quietly says, follow your heart. Okay. So that's when they start looking for a heart in the room. And they notice a heart drawn out of shit on the toilet next to Adam. <laughs> and I want to say, like, I know I've said this so many times. I've over a thousand hours of Dead by Daylight. I fucking love that game. Ghostface Killer's coming out in it soon, too, by the way. It was leaked. Yeah. Um, but when they added Amanda as one of the killers in the game, they always add a map with the killer. And it's it's the it's like a warehouse basically, but there's a bathroom in it. and They got the shit hard on the toilet. Oh, that's awesome! So I'm so glad they threw that little little bit in there. But um, Adam notices this and he looks in the toilet and it's it's full of nasty ass fucking liquid shit. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. But that's what's in there. And uh, he starts fishing around in there. And Doctor Gordon asks him if he found anything yet. No solids. And and he didn't. <laughs> And then he tells him to look in the tank. Well, Adam pops the top off the tank, and there's a bag sitting in there, and he's like, I wish I'd check there first. And that's the thing, man. Every time I watch this movie, I'm like, come on, if that's my clue, I'm checking the fucking top, you know, where the clean water is. <laughs> right, right. First, at least. But he opens the bag, and it's got two hacksaws in it. He throws the bag in the tub near him, right? And uh, he throws one of the hacksaws to Dr. Gordon, and they start trying to cut through their chains and their locks. And I think Lawrence breaks his hacksaw here, right? One of them does. One of them breaks it, which if it's Lawrence, that's going to be awkward at the end of the movie. Uh, <laughs> but it's futile. It doesn't fucking work. Oh, Adam. I wrote it right here. Adam breaks his saw and then he chunks it in a fit of rage and he hits the mirror that's and the corner right. breaks off. Yeah. So he breaks the mirror and um, Gordon points out that he thinks the saws were never meant for the chains or the locks. Yep. They're meant to cut straight through their fucking feet. And, uh, and he's like, I think I might know who's doing this, which is kind of like. On paper, that's very poorly written. Yeah. But they actually, he pulls it off. He tells Adam there's a serial killer that the police are actively looking for. And at one point in time, they thought he was a suspect. And yeah. that's why he knows about it. Yeah. And we kind of get like a little flashback scene. And we see detectives tap, sing, and carry. And they're around an old body that was dead, right? Um, they said the body died of blood loss. and been down there for a while. The guy's in a trap of razor wire. And it's like a maze. And he had to climb through it. And he fucking cut himself and he said he cut himself so deep there was stomach acid on the ground which is fucked up and you get a couple yeah. of little clips of him trying to climb out and uh, I found out that was one of the producers the hockey player was one of his hockey buddies okay. like they just randomly threw it because they were they had no budget so they were throwing friends into those kinds of scenes and uh, I heard rating wise that's one of the scenes that I had to get cut down oh okay like it showed more of him trying to escape originally but I mean it 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 mentally told you enough <laughs> <laughs> you saw the guy hanging by the razor wire. But there's a tape recorder with that body, and there's a voice on it, the same voice on it, and it says the victim was trying to try to take his own life in the past, but he didn't cut himself deep enough. And the voice gave him until 3 o'clock to try to get out of the razor wire maze, and he only had like two hours to do it, right? He just tried to frantically crawl through, cut himself, and bled out, right? So you can tell the guy's playing fucking games with you at this point. But the interesting thing here is a piece of skin's cut out of the guy, and it's shaped like a jigsaw puzzle piece. Yep. So he's given the name the Jigsaw Killer, um, which is interesting. Like, I mean, I thought this too, but it's interesting, he says, because the guy never actually kills anyone. Yeah. He makes you kill yourself, right? You can survive. But you find out about another victim of the Jigsaw Killer, 
where a pin light was found, like a doctor's pin light. And that's what brought them Dr. Gordon. And that guy was burned alive, right? Yeah. It was like some sort of fire game. And that was the only dummy they could afford for the movie. That's all they couldn't <laughs> get one of Tobin Bell because it was like, we can have a guy lay on the ground. We can't have a guy caught on fire. Yeah. Right. So, well, you can, but only once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a two take kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> but they see the pen light. They run it for prints. Comes back as Dr. Gordon, which means he's in the system for something. I just want to point hey. that out. Unless all doctors are in there to be able to prescribe narcotics. I don't know how that works. I mean, hell, <laughs> I'm in the system, but that was to get security clearance to work in places. See, there you go. But like we cut to a hospital and we see Dr. Gordon, like as a doctor, obviously teaching in a hospital and he has students and he's talking over an unconscious patient, right? Which is Tobin Bell. Zach Braff walks in. No way. <laughs> no, it's not scrubs. <laughs> Did you notice that the paper on his tray where he's laying passed out, where the patient's laying passed out is all the blueprints for the reverse bear trap. I think I, I never noticed it, but I think I've seen that in something else. Like a, you didn't see this shit type. Thing. I was trying to catch something that he said and I rewound it and I called it the second time. So, I mean, as many times I've seen it, I never noticed it, but yeah, so it definitely is. And he also, he pockets his pen light. Yeah. So if you're paying enough attention, you can kind of figure out what's going on there. But the orderly, Zep pops in and, you know, cause he says something like he keeps calling him the patient and, uh, the order is like, his name's John, Dr. Gordon, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then he gets, he gets paged and, you know, he's like, obviously I, I don't get to teach my lesson a day or something. He's a little douchey about it. <laughs> and, uh, in comes detectives tap and sing and they want his alibi, right? He doesn't really want to give it to him and it's cause he was trying to have an affair. Yeah. Right. So his alibi is, uh, is another woman and it checks out. But then they ask him if he would like watch while they interviewed a, a previous victim that survived, right? Yeah. I don't, it's not like he's a psychologist. I thought it was a little odd. He's a surgeon, right? I don't know. Maybe they still thought he was in on it and this would glean something that oh, well, he'd give away. I get, well, yeah, well, his pen light was still found at the scene of the crime anyway. So yeah. he's tied in some way to them. So they, I, th- I think he's watching from the other side of a two-way mirror yeah. while one of them, you know, interviews her. But uh, her name's Amanda. <laughs> she comes back later. <laughs> And, and she actually survived a trap. So we know the killer will let you go if you survive the puzzle at this point. Yeah. And she tells her story. <laughs> it's fucking, I mean, it's literally a bear trap closed on her mouth. Instead of it locking shut, it's already shut and it will rip your fucking head in half. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> just in case you don't get it, the jigsaw puppet, Billy, has a little video like Mr. Fucking Wizard. <laughs> shows you how it works and it rips the melon in half, right? Yeah. And I think I read that that was the same footage that they used in the short in the short. And they just kept it right. Cause the same doll and everything. You gotta worry about it looking different. But her thing is if she stood up and like pulled a pin or something out, right. Set off a timer. Yep. And she only had so long to find the key. You are now fucked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there's a man passed out on the floor or he might be dead at this point. And you find out the keys in his stomach where well, she goes and touches him and he wakes up and he's alive. But you find out they, he was so drugged up on opioids that he couldn't feel anything or move, and she had to fucking disembowel him. Yep. They used actual uh, like goat or pig uterus and trails for that scene, too, by the way. They got it nice. like a local Chinese restaurant. And Wait, what? <laughs> that's what it said. That's what it said. I was reading it. Like they went, I guess, from when they were like butchering yeah, animals yeah. in like Chinatown or something, right? But she had to dig through this guy and, and, and get the key out, and it was in there, and she survived. Congratulations. Yeah, she was all about it. She has the reverse bear traps in Dead by Daylight, by the way. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, like if you fucking knock him down on the ground, you got to carry him to like a meat hook to hang him to like went to get points and win. Okay. And you can throw the bear trap on him. That's like her power. Cause every killer has a power. Oh, okay. And, uh, if somebody gets put on a hook, it makes the timer start and there's puzzle boxes and you got to go solve the puzzle boxes. And there's only one of them has your key in it. 
All right. So if you don't get the box off in time, it literally reverse bear traps some of the game. That's awesome. Fucking awesome. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm not trying to plug the game here. We were in no way sponsored. I just enjoy playing it. But hey, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but we find out that Jigsaw picked her because she was a drug addict. Yep. And uh, Tap asked her if she is grateful because the, the recording was like, are you grateful that you have this opportunity to survive or that you're given this opportunity? And it's and she says, yes. Yeah. He helped me. So it, it's working in some kind of fucked up therapeutic way, right? But we cut back to Adam and Lawrence and, uh, you know, from him telling the story. And Adam figures out the piece of glass on the ground is part of a two-way mirror. So he breaks the glass more and he finds a camera behind there, right? So they figure out that somebody's watching him. I think you get to see the little black gloves waving like, hi. Yeah. It's supposed to be like a Jalo reference, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was kind of neat that they threw that in there. But the two of them start bickering about how they can't get out. And we get a flashback of Lawrence with his wife and kids, and he gets Paige to go to work, and he's having to hang out with his daughter, and you know she's like, he's like, I promise I'll be back, and this, this, and that, and you can tell that they're leading to this is the night that he gets captured, right? Yep. We cut back to the bathroom, and Lawrence is throwing his wallet to Adam so he can see a picture of his wife and daughter, and this is interesting here because when he's like, oh, my wife's behind the daughter, and, and Adam reaches in, he finds a pick, and it's of the wife and daughter bound and gagged. And it just says regards on there. And the back of the picture says X marks the spot. That's coming back up again. Yeah. Uh, what's it say? X marks the spot. Sometimes you see more with your eyes shut. So Adam kind of keeps this picture to himself and he throws the wallet back to Lawrence. I think he says like cute family or cute kid or something, yeah. right? That's one of the parts where he's being serious and I don't dig his acting. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I dig him uh, like when he's screaming at the end. Like yeah. he, he gets that done. But we cut back to the Gordon residence and we see Deanna which is the daughter. And then the wife's called Allie and Allison throughout the movie. So we're just going to go with Allie. It's shorter. Uh, and they get captured by Zep and he's doing this creepy stethoscope thing where he's like freaking them out and listening to her heartbeat to listen to it, get accelerated. Apparently he was doing a weird thing with their panties and they decided to scratch that. Oh okay. yeah. I don't know what the weird thing was. Oh man. But what we also find out is that detective tap is spying on the Gordon residents from across the street. Oh Yeah. And he's got like a really raspy voice, right? And he's I like, wonder why. Yeah, and he's like, Dr. Gordon, do you know that there's a man home with your wife? Because he doesn't know. Yeah. At first, I was a little mad. I, th- I thought maybe he was like watching the serial killer do his thing to try to get to the big fish. Yeah. And then I figured out that he's just trying to catch Dr. Gordon doing something. Yeah, he's and, fucking obsessed. Yeah, yeah, he's obsessed at this point. And you can tell there's like fucking Chinese food boxes everywhere. And there's like the goddamn red yarn running across <laughs> the room and pictures. And uh, he's trying to catch Dr. Gordon. He just thinks that his wife's cheating on him, right? Yeah. We have a flashback of Detective Tap where he's obsessing over the Amanda footage and he figures something out from the sound in the recording. I don't remember what it was, but something he's like, oh, you remember that gang territory? We busted that gang. That's what he says to sing. Yep. And uh, they head to the location and they actually find Jigsaw's kill room and there's a victim in there on a machine. And it either hadn't started yet or it like, just wasn't to the part where it would actually kill him, right? Yeah. And they hear Jigsaw coming, so they hide. And they bust out with their shotguns, fucking like 21 Jump Street Miami Vice style. <laughs> <laughs> and Jigsaw fucking, what's he do? Like pops a switch and makes the drill start. Because there's like two drills to come in on the guy's head. Yes. His temples, right? It's fucked up. But they have to pick. Do they want to save the guy or go after the fucking killer? Right? Yeah. Now you'll make a choice. But the killer monologues about people wasting their lives and giving them value. And he's giving them value. And then he pops out a wrist blade and fucking slits Tap's throat. So now we figure out why he's got a raspy voice. Amanda is up in the game, too, as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he, ta- he makes a run for it. 
Sing checks on Tap, make sure he's at least alive, right? And he starts to chase Jigsaw. Well, and sh- one of them, they shoot. Don't they shoot the drill bits off the end of the drills? They save the guy in some way. Okay. So I guess that's what they did. I couldn't remember, and I fucking carelessly left that out of my notes. <laughs> but uh, Sing actually pops Jigsaw in the back with a shotgun. I guess he had a vest on or something. I mean, he gets up limping later. Possibly. But he was, I mean, he should have been dead, right? When Jigsaw gets up, doesn't like fucking Sing start chasing him, right? Yes. And then he hits a tripwire, and there's like shotguns mounted on the ceiling that blows his brains out. I think I've yeah. read they had the second take that, and that's Lee. Oh, really? Lee plays Sing in some of the movie. Okay. Because they, they did $400 worth of reshoots themselves. Because <laughs> they, they had to fix some shit. But Tap gets up, and he finds Sing's body, and Jigsaw gets away, right? We cut back to his nasty-ass motel room, and we find out that he's crazy as fuck because of this, and he's obsessing over it. And he's like, I just want to close this thing. And he's talking to Sing, who's not there, right? Yeah. Doesn't he have like a picture of him and shit? Yeah. Do they go that far <laughs> I with think it? So. It reminded me of, like fucking retiring Murdoff from like a lethal weapon. He just wants his boat, right? <laughs> <laughs> fucking Riggs just won't let him have it. It makes me think of uh, what's the end uh, of the National Lampoon spoof, Loaded Weapon One? Yeah, yeah. Where he's crying, he's holding the picture, and you can't see what's in the picture, and he's crying on it, and it finally cuts to a reverse shot, so you can see the picture he's holding. You think he's talking about his dead wife, but it's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the movie forever, but I remember it being pretty funny. It's awful, but it's funny. We cut back to the shit shack, and the odd couple turn the lights off, and they find a. Uh, they find a glowing X on the wall, right? Yeah. Which they just used a projector for that scene. But they break the wall and they find a lock box and they use the key that he fucking threw in the room. But they open it up and they find a cell phone. Most beautiful invention on this planet. And a cigarette. Make that second most beautiful invention. And a note that says the cigarettes are harmless and a gun is not needed to kill Adam. Uh. Right? The phone can only receive calls, they find out, though. It wouldn't be that easy, right? Yeah. And then we get another Lawrence flashback, and it's him in a garage, and he starts hearing a camera flash, and he tries to use his phone, and it gives like a can't-make-a-call-out signal, which is what that phone just did, and he's attacked by a fucking pig monster. Yeah, right? the, the pig monster with the weird wig and the red cape. Um, but then we cut right back to the stank tank. And Lawrence wants to know how Adam <laughs> knew to turn off the lights. And he's like, what else are you hiding from me? Because, you know, he, he's kind of catching on to it, right? Yes. And uh, Adam throws in the pic of his wife and daughter bound and gagged. And you see Lawrence, you know, start freaking out about this. And then he dips the cigarette in the guy's blood, which is poisoned, if you recall. Yes. He then stands up and kills the lights. And we see that Zepp can't see anything on his monitor, right? Yeah. And Lawrence whispers a plan to Adam to go along with, which I guess turning the lights off makes it we can't hear whispers. Yeah. And this is maybe. Well, no, this is another one of those poorly written parts. I don't think it was, though. You think that at this point, right? But then the lights come back on. And uh, but I mean, if they're being watched, you got to go ahead and assume you're being listened to as well. Yeah. But he whispered it. So maybe they're hoping all he can hear is right. But the lights come back on. He throws Adam a cigarette, which he smokes, and he starts faking like he's poisoned and convulsed. Yeah, now that was over-the-top crap right there. But I think that's the thing. I think it was supposed to be, though. And he falls over like he's dead, and then Zep just turns on the fucking there's electric shackles and shocks him. Like, yeah, he does. You dumb motherfuckers, I'm watching you, right? <laughs> so I, I really think it was all kind of planned on that. Like, you're supposed to, like, this is a dumb idea out of desperation. Yeah. And your acting was poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, and I understand that, the the acting part where he was overacting. But in the realm of the movie, you know it's not going to work. Right. Because nobody's right. going to buy it. We'll see what you try when you're chained in a fucking shitty, nasty-ass bathroom and poop everywhere and you can't get out. Right? I don't want to be there again. Holy <laughs> shit. My first trip to LA was horrible. Jesus Christ. 
But uh, I skipped ahead of myself, actually, because Lauren starts yelling, like, I've done it, I've killed Adam, and that's when they electrocute him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He fucking wakes up. They knew he was faking, right? Lawrence tries to cut his chain again. Guess what? It didn't work the first time, motherfucker. Ain't gonna work the second. Yeah, and this is when he's he's the calm guy, and this is when he finally loses his well, shit. Well, it's because the guy he knows they have his wife and daughter at this point. Yeah. But miraculously, Adam realizes how he got there, right? Uh, we get like a Peter Parker flashback where he's like college age kid with his camera just trying to take pictures for money. He's gotta get that <laughs> Spider Man. And uh he's a PI, I guess, right? He takes photos of people. And he was following Lawrence to catch him cheating. Is what I thought was happening. Absolutely. But it's actually not what was happening. I know. Yeah. They could have left it that way. But he goes into his dark room at his apartment, and it's a shitty-ass apartment. Right? It's apparently not a good PI. And he's trying to develop photos in the dark room. He passes out, he wakes up, uh, and he's in the dark. And the power's out in his apartment, and he can't get fuck all to turn on, right? <laughs> then he can hear someone, and he starts using the flash on his camera to walk through the house. Although this part was kind of cool. Yes. It's a little creepy. Was- because you don't know what the fuck's going to happen. This felt like you were walked into a different movie. It was great. Right, right, right. And then you hear this creepy-ass laugh. <laughs> and then he sees the puppet. <laughs> and he beats the shit out of him with a baseball bat. <laughs> it's a natural reaction, okay? Uh, and then he's attacked by a fucking pig monster. <laughs> yes, I'm going to say it a second time because that's what happens. But then we cut back to the biker bar bathroom. <laughs> and the phone starts ringing, right? <laughs> And you it's just di- really didn't want to say bathroom over and over again, did you? Well, it's a nasty, like who the fuck leaves a bathroom that way? Actually, I've been to some dive bars. <laughs> there were much smaller bathrooms, but there was like shit drawn on the toilet. The ones so. where you just open the door and pee into the room. <laughs> I actually kind of got a sidebar story here, right? So when me and my wife first started dating, there's this guy that she had worked with and they were friends, right? And we all went out to a like Celtic pub that had just opened in town to go drinking. And I, I think I'd met the guy one time before, right? Okay. And we're all three drinking pretty heavily. And we both, I don't remember who said they had to take a piss first, but the other one had to go as well, right? So I'm just assuming it's a bathroom in a bar. There's usually more than one toilet. It is a tiny one right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> walks in behind me when I'm looking at it. And it's not just a one it doesn't have a urinal. It just has a toilet and a stall without a door. And the dude just starts talking to me and drops his pants and starts busting his shit. Oh, nice. In the fucking toilet. Like, we've known each other forever. And then he's this like. serve time. And I was like, I'll be back. And he's like, just piss in the sink. Have you seen how nasty this place is? So. It sounds like you're describing a place we have. We may have played some shows at. No, you've never been. Well, I'm not saying. You've never been here with me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so anyway, that's my random sidebar on the nasty-ass bathroom, but it's kind of similar, but smaller. But but the phone rings, and it's Diana and Allison, and they're tied up, and they're crying for Gordon to come home, and Allison says, don't trust Adam, right? So you have that popping out, and uh, he knows more than he's saying, he knows more than he's letting on, blah, 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 right? Yeah. So he finds out at this point that Adam was the one following him and taking photos, right? And... uh there's actually photos that he took that were in the bag with the hacksaw. And that's why I just kind of carelessly threw the bag into the tub. I guess he didn't want him to see those, right? Exactly. Then we get some more flashbacks and he's in the hotel and it's with one of the interns that he was teaching, right? Or I don't know what you call them at that point when they're doing their clinicals and shit, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know if he ever actually had an affair at all. He definitely didn't with her. Yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. He didn't with her. And I got, that's the read I got on the movie is that he, I, I think I want to do this, but then when he was actually faced with it he couldn't do it right right he breaks it off with her instantly right yeah so she has total great self-worth now after this <laughs> but the phone rings and nobody should know they're there right skipping 
that would have been great. Um, <laughs> but the voice says, I know what you're doing, doctor. And then he goes to, you know, and he gets angry and he leaves, right? Yep. And he goes in the parking garage and uh, gets captured there. I hate to interrupt you, but, and what it feels like in the movie, what it's setting up right now for the viewer is it's, it's all Adam. Adam is so deep into this somehow that you don't, don't root for him in any way at this moment in the movie. At least is what kind of how I felt. I guess I could see them kind of doing it that way, but I didn't take it that way. Right. But you do get when he cuts to the scene in the garage, it's the same scene from earlier where he got attacked by the pig monsters. They don't show us the whole thing. again. Yeah. what you do find out is that detective tap is who hired Adam to follow him. Right. Yeah. So he's just trying to catch him because he's not a part of the police force anymore. I think they actually say something like that. He's like, I don't know. It's a tall black guy with a scar in his throat. And he's like, detective tap. He's like, there's no way this guy was a cop. <laughs> he didn't care. some of the money. Familiar. But we start cutting back and forth between the Gordon house and the mother and daughter trying to escape while the guys like are in the bathroom figuring out that Zepp was behind this. Right. Yeah. Because one of the pictures that he took, Oh no, no. It was a picture that Adam didn't take had Zepp in it. Okay. Which is kind of confusing because you see Detective Tap spying earlier and he sees him and takes a picture. So it was one of the pictures from Detective Tap. I don't know how they would have got know. that. Right. But he figures out that Zepp's in on it. Right. The fucking intern from work or the orderly from work. Yeah. Disorderly. But they run out of time. So Zepp's like, uh oh, got to go kill the wife and daughter now. Right. Yep. The Gordons, though, Diana and Allison, they actually got loose. So when they hear him coming, they start acting like they're bound and gag. Right. And they fake like they're caught. And uh, Zepp tells Allison that Dr. Gordon failed and he calls Larry's cell phone or Lawrence's cell phone. And uh, she says that uh, Zepp failed and takes the gun from him. Right. Like she's like throwing his own words back at him. There's a struggle and the gun fires off like it's nothing. But Tap sees the the muzzle flash and he hears the gunshot. So he starts running in to help. Right. Because he's like something's fucked up. And Allie ends up stabbing Zepp. Right. And then she unties Diana. Right as Tap comes in, and then they start having a shootout, I think, in the house. Yeah, they have it's a all little, very quick. Yeah, a little bit of a shootout. One of them gets clipped. Yes. I don't remember which one, though. Yeah. Because I was going to bring that up, but I couldn't remember which one it was. I know Zepp's limping later, but it might be from the stab wound. Yeah. But Zepp leaves to go kill Lawrence, and Tap follows him. Lawrence is electrocuted and knocked out for some reason at this point. Oh, I remember why. It's not at this point. I remember what happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, Adam tries to wake him up, and... He does wake up and the phone starts ringing, but he can't reach it. Right. And he starts getting hysterical and freaking out because he wants to know if his wife and kids are okay. There's another part I don't like. He grabs the saw and he just frantically cuts his own fucking foot off. Carrie always did this part beautifully. I thought the part I don't like is how he's acting before he yeah. comes to the conclusion. Once he comes to the conclusion, I'm okay again. His hystericalness is like extreme, but I feel like, I mean, if he's about to cut his own fucking foot off, you probably would be a little extreme at that point. Yeah, I don't. I'm not passing judgment. I don't want to, I don't want to be in that situation. <laughs> uh, I thought Lee Winnell did a good job freaking the fuck out right here. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. Um, but he cuts his fucking foot off so he can crawl over the phone, right? Yeah, and it was the wrong foot. No, wait, that's a scary movie before. <laughs> that would have been fucking, oh, I guess that, I was just going to say it'd be hilarious, but I guess it was done before, right? But we cut back and taps chasing Zep down and uh, Zep beats his ass, right? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and then he shoots tap, right? So this is where somebody got shot. So the shootout was nothing happened. And then one-legged Lawrence crawls to the gun, loads it, and shoots at him, right? And you're like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> this man's this, had enough. I'm looking at my notes, how I'm like at the end right now, and this end is really quick. Like, once it oh, starts. Oh, yeah, it's abrupt <laughs> as fuck. And um, Zepp comes in to kill Lawrence because it's too late, and those are the rules. I think he, like, specifically says that, too. Yeah. And uh, injured Adam gets up and tackles him, and he beats his fucking head in with a toilet lid. 
This is also another scene where well, I felt the, like it's the lid off the the upper part. Yeah, the tank lid. Yeah, yeah, yeah of the toilet. But uh, this is another part where I felt like his acting was great. And apparently yeah. they took a garbage bag and just filled it with like bullshit and fake blood and just let him beat the fuck out of it. Right? <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> and uh, Lawrence gets up and he and he like takes the toilet lid from Adam. Right? And he's like, oh, he's he's dead now. We're <laughs> right. And uh, he says, I'm gonna go get help. Right. <laughs> He's so fucking pale and bleeding exactly. out. Exactly. Like, he's like, dude, you aren't going to make it 10 feet. He starts crawling away. Like, he's the little engine that could, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Adam starts frantically looking for a key on Zep's body, which is actually pretty clever. Yeah. Like, oh, this is my captor, right? And I guess they assume he's Jigsaw. It's actually safe to assume he's Jigsaw at this point. And if you've never seen this and you're still listening, stop right fucking now. Yeah. And three, two, <laughs> one. <laughs> But he finds uh, a, a tape on him and plays it, and we find out that, uh, or it might have been a whole tape recorder, right? But he plays yeah, the I tape. Yeah, it's a second tape recorder with a tape in it. And we find out that Zep was actually poisoned and had to play a game, right? Yep. And he had to kidnap the wife and kid and go kill Dr. Lawrence, or he was going to die without the antidote. Now, I want to point out, this is when we get the cue, the music. It's fucking awesome. But it's the cue, the music, aha, twist yeah. part. When he's playing the tape, we all of a sudden see the dead guy in the middle of the fucking room stand up and rip off some latex and fake blood. And uh, it's fucking Jigsaw. He's faking dead the whole time. And I think, uh, I don't remember if the tape says it or what, but he did something to slow down his heartbeat and stuff, right? Yeah. He stands up in the middle of the room and he tells Adam the key's in the tub. So he could have got out the whole time. However, he pulled... The tub drain out and drain the key out, right? Yep, and it shows that. It, I don't know if it shows it in a flashback there at the end or or what, but yeah. It shows him remembering pulling the drain. I don't know if it specifically shows the key, though. But Jigsaw just leaves the room and says, game over, and leaves Adam locked in the room. I want to say Adam picks up Zep's gun, though, and starts trying to shoot, and he just electrocutes him with the remote. Because so we figure out he has a remote, right? So it was him doing the shotgun the whole time and not Zep. And the movie fucking ends, and it, it could have stayed a solo movie like that just fine. Oh, yeah. Am I going to like the sequels? I hear that they're like... Up and down, hot and cold. They're up and down, hot and cold. What ends up happening, and this is subjective, this is all from my point of view. And don't go too much into it, because we're going to cover this franchise yeah. at some point. No, it, it starts to become way more about the traps and how elaborate they are. The thread of you have to make a choice does stay in there. It starts to wane a little bit. And what's cool is later on in the series, the way they start, I don't remember who wrote all the different ones as it went. But the way they start hearkening back and building a thread to pull them all back together makes it come back to where it started. I hear that's really good because I do know about a second killer. Yeah. And uh, I think the same director did two on. And I can't think of his name right now. I feel bad, but he's part of the Splat Pack, which yeah. James Wan's in the Splat Pack, even though he's not really a splatter. <sighs> that's director. a weird one for me. But yeah, I think you make it through the whole thing. Don't just get bored after like four. Make, make it a point to watch all of them all yeah. the way up through Jigsaw. And I've seen some fucked up torture porn traps from starting the movies and have to check on them from the projection booth, which those are always lovely to check on when you're in a projection booth by yourself. Yeah, because that's what happens is they start being the opening scenes. My old roommate, Mike, well, you know, Mike, we yeah. grew up with him, but he would just constantly watch them in our office back there, like while we were playing video games on the other screen. But I never fucking sat there and watched them with them. There's a limit to that to where I'd be wondering. Uh, he was he was all into it, man, like the lore. And he tried to explain it to me, like when he's outside smoking and I was drinking a beer, you know, I'm like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, and I was like, I'll watch them one day, and I still have it. It's yeah. fucking crazy. I can't say shit, I still haven't watched The Exorcist. But uh, I would say for that being your first film, fucking James Wan knocked that one out the park. 
Absolutely. The direction on it was good. There's hints, like when we leave the room and go into other areas with like the detectives and everything, there's some spots that feel a little clunky. Yeah. Um, or visually look a little clunky. But all in all, man, yeah. yeah your first movie coming out the gate, I mean, it's not a $27,000 fucking two guys in a convenience store talking type movie. <laughs> Because that was made for like 1.2 mil, right? Which yeah. is still a fucking lowest shit budget. Yeah, for for the for the depth and ground that had to be covered in the movie, there was a lot more money. But yeah, that's once again, it's way neater looking back on this in hindsight. And I feel like he he probably got to make the movie he wanted to make. For the most part, yeah. From what what I saw in interviews and read in interviews, it went the way they wanted it to go, so to speak. Regardless, it happened, and there was buzz, and the two of them are both like. We made a movie and they didn't even get to enjoy relishing in the fact. Right. We made a movie. It was thrust into the spotlight way too fast. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder how you get very identifiable faces in a movie like that low budget. I know. Because they got Carrie Elway's in it. They got Danny Glover in it. I mean, fucking Amanda, Shawnee Smith. I mean, she was like, I recognized her immediately from like summer school and stuff like that. Yeah. That's actually a funny thing. James Wan always had a crush on her since he was a teenager. And when he was sitting down there trying to figure out the cast, they're like, who do you want to play Amanda? And he's like, it'd be cool if we got Shawnee Smith. And he was joking. And they called him back like, oh, she's available. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So he had a crush on her. Like she, you know, she did 80s movies and stuff. But uh, Monica Potter, I think. Oh, I just realized that she plays uh, Dr. Gordon's wife. Yeah. I think she is the FBI agent or cop or whatever. And along came a spider, which spoilers ends up actually being the killer or working with the killer. So, I mean, like, I'd seen her in some shit, too. So, and then some of the people ended up being, like, lost. And, and Tobin Bell, he's fucking iconic. Yeah. I'll put him up there with all the other iconic. I mean, slashers, in a way, he's well, a slasher. Exactly. That's why we, you know, we covered it in the in the slasher series that, you know, if you look at it, we've got an iconic character, unique setup, unique weapons. And that's the thing. This is like going back to some other movies we've talked about where it's not a gorehound movie. It's not a horror movie. It's not a thriller movie. It's all of these things. Yes. And that's part of the fucking awesome aesthetic of it, right? And the, and the GP could come in and see it just as a thriller and it worked. And, and I, I fucking, I liked the movie when I first saw it for some reason, never was interested enough to watch the sequels. And I would go back and watch it, even though, I mean, it's not really my shtick for the most part, other than the slight slasher element. But it's just because it was a well-made movie, which is what you get from him. Well, see, and I was partially the same way. Someone else had to make me watch, I think it was Chris actually made me watch two. Is that the one? Have you seen enough to seen the, the thing with the pit of the hypodermic needles? Yes, I've seen that part. <laughs> That's two, right? I think so. I don't remember. Because once it got to that, I was like, I'm so out. Because <laughs> I don't do needles, man. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you let those guys have some time. Let them have a little bit of control. And they make an awesome movie if they have all the time in the world to make it. But if you get the same two guys together, James Wan and Lee Winnell, and you basically force them to make a movie at that point, they force themselves. Maybe, you know, they weren't forced by naivety. They force themselves into shitting out a movie immediately afterwards, and you get uh, dead silence. I love this movie on paper. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't not like the movie. I love the idea. The, the whole idea of the the ventriloquist, I have a hard time saying this word. This is going to be an interesting episode. I'm doing this, uh, this movie. Um, but the, the ventriloquist and taking, being killed, I'm going to come take your voice. Like, I love all, all that part of it as yeah. far as just, just the story in a nutshell. I definitely see where you're coming from, though, because I had never seen the movie before this episode. This is actually the only movie on the list I hadn't seen because I'm a big James Wan fan. And 
I don't know. And I was like, oh, there's the guy from True Blood, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, there's some creepy fucking puppets. What's up with James Wan and creepy fucking puppets? And then you get the extra element. And I don't, I don't want to get into that yet. I'll let you yeah. have that glory. But like, that was the cool part to me. Yeah. Was the extra twist. And I, I'm going to get to it at the end, but James Wan, somebody interviewed him was like five tips. If you're starting out as an independent horror movie maker. And that was one of them was like, <laughs> take something basic and then like add something extra to it. Yeah. And, and fucking that is the cool part of this movie. One thing I got to go into real quick before we get into the movie, just because of coming right off of Saul, like that iconic Saul theme, the theme that you hear played all throughout this movie. Well, that was written by Charlie Clouser, who wrote the Saul theme. I heard that was actually part of what helped them. Like he did the music for the short also. Yeah. Right. So that like kind of helped them get that done. Right. And, and and I like it. We open with text on the screen that talks about the, uh, the belly speaking. The ventriloquist actually comes from the Latin venter, meaning belly, and I guess loqui, loqui, I don't fucking know. Loki, Been a long time yeah. since Latin class. That means to speak. So to speak from the belly, I guess. So during the open credits, we're seeing like somebody flipping through this book with these drawings and design ideas and a note on there to make the perfect doll. And uh, that's going to come up later. <laughs> so we're introduced to uh, Jamie and Lisa. Jamie is Ryan. How do you pronounce his fucking last name, man? Is it just Quantin? I think it's Quantin. Yeah, okay. that's how I've always said it. And, I've heard it said that way a couple of times. And he's dude from True Blood, like you said. He's also and, Australian. And he is. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't seen True Blood. The wife ended up watching those after she had shown me this movie because she's the one who actually showed me i knew nothing about this movie gotcha. the night she put it in and like it's open i'm like what is this and she tried to tell me and i'm like i still don't know what the fuck you're talking about he's not australian in true blood so you wouldn't have caught that anyways he's like very like southern country boy. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and just wants to fuck everything <laughs> pretty much yeah. that's, that's what i was saying when i was watching it for the second time i'm like hey he's that guy in true blood that wants to fuck everybody he's the brother and this was oh seven I'm trying to think if True Blood was out, but it would have had to have been. Yeah, I'm so. the wrong person to ask. Man. I, don't, I don't fucking know. But we got him and his wife, Lisa, who I don't remember who played her. Uh, I really don't like her. They get this random package at the door. She's barely in the movie. I know. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> oh, God. I know. I sound cold about it. I just didn't really like her. So at the box. And after watching this movie and watching Child's Play movies, if a box of this size ever shows up at my door that I didn't order, I'm not bringing it in the house. I mean, if somebody ever mails you a fucking dummy, just no. <laughs> And uh, so they open it up and it's this dummy and uh, Lisa's loving it. She's like playing with it and she's like, oh, it reminds me of that poem. You know, the Mary Shaw poem. Beware the stare of Mary Shaw. She had no children, only dolls. And if you see her in your dreams, be sure you never, ever scream. So Jamie goes to pick up takeout and uh, because this kind of like interrupted them fixing dinner. And she's so into this, she's setting up the dummy as a prank. So she's got it in the bedroom with a sheet over it. I mean, it's a good prank if you think about it, if you have that situation. Yeah. And uh, as she walks by the mirror, she stops and kind of looks at her stomach like, oh, what would I look like pregnant? And then like grabs something, puts it under her shirt. Like, oh, what would I look like pregnant? And uh, can I say that I immediately was like, oh, she's pregnant when I saw that. Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, I do that a few times in this movie. And I honestly <laughs> think I would have enjoyed the movie if I didn't guess the whole fucking movies I watched it. That is part of the problem with this movie is the subtleties are not subtle. Yeah. They were really good. There's some good shit in this movie. There really was. Yeah. It just, I don't, I hate to say it wasn't done well because that blames James Wan, but it wasn't done well. I say it all the time, man. This comes off clunky. And yeah. That's just my go to phrase. It also kind of, I don't know, it feels like a Flanagan movie in some ways to me too, but not done well. And that's what I wanted to say, fuck it, I'll say it now, about James Wan, is we talked about Eli Roth, 
and you know we're not doing character heavy character development we're doing a little bit of over the top we try to put some message in there we do plan again where it's like tons of backstory care about these characters great dread intention and uh not a gore hound and Juan's like somewhere in between these two to me he actually cites himself as like he thinks he's like I mean I feel like he's a character development guy and he thinks he is too he he I saw an interview where he said he he just gets sick of like horror movies or just faceless people like lambs to the slaughter I am paraphrasing heavily he didn't say that <laughs> but like he's just saying like you know he wants his characters to be people yeah and you can feel that in insidious and conjuring you can and he's not bad at it i'm not saying right. that at all just to me at least recently coming off of flanagan and really looking yeah. at that not flanagan, as good as flanagan right well i mean flanagan does character development on a character that can't fucking talk and it worked right no right? so i mean obviously that's a strong point of his i would say he he's not as good as flanagan at it i 100 percent agree but like i don't feel like it was done in this movie at all like saw you 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 got how Dr. Gordon was. You got how Adam yes. was. You could tell when it shifted a little bit. In this, this movie, mo- this movie, it all feels rushed. I'm sure it was. Um, and not exactly. Much like this podcast episode. But uh, <laughs> so uh, what's really cool here is we have the stereo slows down. The tea kettle slows down and stops and we get dead silence. <laughs> I think we even get the clock, the pendulum stopping. And uh, she hears laughter and she goes to pull the sheet off the dummy. And uh, the sheet fucking wraps around her, throws her ass out of the room. She spits out blood and then gets drugged back into the room. Right. So meanwhile, I think we've got, you know, Jamie's out getting the eats in the rain. He comes back and he comes in. And so we've gone from silent to he opens the door and fucking stereo is blaring. The kettle's screaming still on the stove and shit. And he's turning shit off and yelling for Lisa. And he hears her yell back. I'm in here. So he goes towards the voice and he like slips in this puddle of blood going into the bedroom and shit. That was a nice touch. And uh, he sees the sheet over something in the bed and he rips the sheet off and there's Lisa fucking her corpse mouth ripped open tongue ripped out. It's kind of like what you would look like after a reverse bear trap ripped your half and fucking head. <laughs> yes. Well, I always go. Your head, <laughs> whoa, wait a second. Your head and fucking half. Yeah. What are we eating? Magnets? Um, <laughs> shit. <laughs> It always reminds me, I can't help it, because I saw this first, Mirrors, when the sister fucking rips her own head open. I'll tell you what I thought of this whole time. Have you ever seen a movie called Magic? I don't know. I don't remember much of the movie, other than I watched it, barely double-digit age, <laughs> and I know it's a guy with a ventriloquist dummy, he might even be a magician, and I think he's a serial killer. Is he like old school with a top hat? Maybe. Maybe. I just know, like, I was like, oh, I've seen a movie with a dummy in it, and like, that's it, you got two of them. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we cut to Officer Donnie interviewing <laughs> Jamie, and I'm saying that because it, it's Detective Lipton, but it's Donnie Wahlberg, which is funny because isn't he now like on a detective show? I think so, but I've never thought he was a good actor. Neither did I. Like, well, was he like a fucking new kid on the block or yes. something? Yes. And then he's We used the... to tell the jokes about how they burned the hotel down because Donnie threw a joint in the, <laughs> in the trash can. That was the joke I always heard growing up. He was in Sixth Sense in his tidy whiteies. Wait, what? He's the crazy guy at the beginning with Bruce Willis. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Well, you know, this is heavy spoilers. <laughs> Bruce Willis is dead at the end of Sixth Sense. Oh, you asshole. Uh, <laughs> but uh, remember the guy that shows up crying in his room at the beginning and oh, shoots okay. and kills him? That's Donnie Wahlberg. It's no hard shit. to tell. Yeah, yeah, but it's him. Okay. Um, Man, I could do Braille like no one else. <laughs> so, and I'm going to call him Officer Donnie for the rest of this. I just can't help it. He is fucking sure that it's Jamie. And Jamie's bringing up like, this package was sent. You need to be investigating that. 
And uh, the town that he comes from, there's a legend about dummies that they bring death to those around them. I just want to interject here. That's all fine and dandy, but the way it is filmed, it's just like fucking, you don't want to believe Jamie when he tells him. I agree. And then Detective Donnie is like too over the top. Film well, noir cop. Well, yeah. Well, he's like the guys in, in the, the cop dramas where it's like, you know why I think it's the husband? Because it's always the husband. It may even get fucking said in this movie. But he doesn't do it well. He doesn't. But and I'm then, just saying he's just stuck in that zone. I just want to know the fuck Lee Winnell and James Watt wrote this movie. And it's just like so fucking hand over fist, like haymaker in the face. Like, this is what's happening. Let me staple your head to the carpet. You know what I mean? It is. <laughs> so, um... Uh, He's released and uh, he goes back to the crime scene and gets the dummy and he's looking at the case and he notices that part of the lining inside the case is ripped and he sees something under it. So he rips it off and it's the amazing Mary Shaw and Billy. And uh, it's like, Jesus Christ, what I was already thinking, this has to be what it is. And uh, so he takes Billy. Yeah, because at this point we know it's Billy. I don't know why there's the dramatic look later on in the movie to see the name Billy on the back of the puppet since we already know because it says it inside the fucking case, but whatever. Fucking haymakers to the head. He wanted you to realize that it's Billy just like in Saul, man. Well, I actually, know. I guess he's never called Billy in Saul. You just have to know that as a fan, right? Yeah. So uh, he heads home to Raven's Fair, like home, home. His stepmother, Ella, answers the door. The Stepford wife? <laughs> he goes on this tear about how his dad's a terrible piece of shit. And she's like, oh, no, he's a changed person, blah, blah, blah. They make it into the room and this guy's in a fucking wheelchair and you get this look from Jamie like, oh, my dad wasn't like this the last time I saw him and uh, talk about how he had a uh, he talks about how he had a stroke and uh, it's basically made him a changed man. And he's like compassionate. He's sad. He sent him away and shit. I'm going to have a spoiler moment here. Okay. I immediately in the scene go, oh, he's a fucking puppet. and She's the witch. I was so mad that I figured (laughs) out. The thing is, I don't hate this movie because I feel like there's some very clever shit that happened. Yeah. I just wish I wouldn't have figured it out so quick. I know. And then I have, does that mean I have to hate on the movie because they made it too obvious? Or do I just watch too many fucking horror movies now that we have a podcast? I'm going to go with the latter because my fucking wife is so good at this and we will watch new movies together. And she, okay, so she has this rule. If you're watching it the first time, keep your fucking mouth shut. Don't laugh at the jokes. Don't talk about it. And then the second time, I don't care. We're going to have a terrible time the first time I watch movies with her. But, but when she's like, so I can't sit on this. I know this is what's happening. She'll say something and uh, she's really good at it. And I think that's what happens is you, she watches a fuck ton of horror, man. And I think the more you watch any, any particular genre, like if you watch, you know, the action and the, you know, you know, the, the offbeat side character is going to flip the right switch and save the day. You watch right. the romantic comedy and the reform cool guy is going to get the girl. You know, it, I think you just start seeing the tells way too easy. And it's not bad filmmaking. I think it's really fucking hard to do for the fans. Because if you sit in a big theater, you get to the end of a movie like this. And most people in the theater are like, <gasps> and all the horror fans are like, I've waited 90 fucking minutes for this. The thing is, though, I can still be got, though. Like, there yes. are gotchas that get me. But I know, like, David, my buddy, has a rule when we watch movies together. If it's the first time for both of us, I'm not allowed to see theories when we watch them. Because <laughs> they're almost always right. And it makes them fucking mad. But every now and then I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. And I think I would have liked this movie a lot more if it would have got me. Yeah, there was not a holy shit in this one. I was like half-assed there. I wasn't sure enough to blurt it out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. type thing. This was your first time to watch the movie as well? Watching it for the podcast was only the second time I've seen it. Okay, okay. But the first time I watched it, I was like, is that, why is she always standing there? <laughs> you know, I th- but not until the dinner Her hand's scene. always on his back, too. Yeah. So was, uh, you had to do that, though, because- Here's the thing, though. If they didn't do all that, and then you get the twist at the end, we'd be having a different conversation about how shittily filmed it was, that there was no way for you to be able to figure it out because they 
didn't do it continuity wise right yeah i'm gonna try to stop derailing man i'm sorry but it's just like <laughs> i just i was so mad because i was like oh new james wan movie you know i was so excited they're new to me anyways yeah. you know and i'm just like <sighs> <laughs> so jamie asks his dad about mary shaw and he's like that's just a fucking legend you know small town small minds so um he goes and gets a room and he goes to see the mortician is like oh her body will be delivered blah 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 yada 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 and he goes and gets a, a motel room and we do the same bit again and i have to talk about this because i like it i love the whole idea of it all slowly going silent it almost builds tension for me at least but it's still really really neat that like what's going to happen and now it's just silent it's not the low rumble something's fixing to happen it's not the weird framing something's going to jump in from that side i really like that music is almost always used to like position the mood and they do the absence of sound, right? And this one. So. Yeah. And so he thinks he hears Lisa and uh, he opens his eyes because he's laying in bed while this is going on. And uh, he sees that Billy has moved and he sees Mary Shaw over in the corner, which is this woman in black. It's not like we're going to see that again later. Um, <laughs> That's a bride. Damn it. It's completely different. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> back to the mortician, Henry, um, when he when he gets her and he unzips the bag and he sees her face and he's like, it can't be. Here's Marion, which is his wife, and she's hiding like under the house type thing in this crawl space. And I think at that point she's even saying shit about Mary Shaw. And uh, he goes back and he takes a fucking picture of Lisa's corpse in the body bag, which seems really odd, but we'll find out why later. And at the funeral, Jamie sees Marion like off in the woods and follows her. And she makes it to what quickly gets exposed as Mary Shaw's grave. And she's crazy. She's like bonkers. We've already set her up for that when she's hiding under the house and shit. Right. So we don't want to believe half of what she's saying. And uh, she tells Jamie that Mary Shaw uh, killed his wife. And was like, you have to bury the doll. You have to bury the doll. And like Henry's taking her away. And she's yelling at Jamie, you have to bury the doll. So we go back to the motel. We get a real quick cut to him getting Billy and taking him back to the cemetery. And uh, which sounds fucked up, but it gets explained later. And he buries the doll. As he goes to leave, he fucking hears noises, sees Billy outside of his window, and he sees Mary Shaw. And uh, actually, I think he hears Mary and sees Billy. And he goes back to the motel. <laughs> and fucking Donnie's there and he's like <laughs> with Billy like what the fuck do you bury this for like why are you so weird man and uh he's like so you've done trespass on a crime scene you're fucking stealing evidence like how am I not going to prosecute you and because back at the beginning um when he's first interviewing him he's like this is horrible you need I gotta think like what's your defense lawyer gonna say like, <laughs> they're trying to play this like he's a seasoned cop so he goes ahead and tells him more about Mary Shaw and the whole poem. And it's like, and if you see her, never scream or she'll cut out your tongue. <laughs> and uh, Donnie's like, that's great. And he takes Billy the doll. and He's like, see a neighbor. And he's got the room next door. Oh, and I got to point out, Donnie likes to shave with an electric razor all the time for some reason. <laughs> um, I mean, they had to go with that or an electric toothbrush. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jamie goes and takes Billy again the next morning and uh, he goes back to question Marion. Like, I need to know more what's going on. And uh, we get, he ends up talking to Henry instead and Henry tells the story. So this is the backstory of Mary Shaw. And so back in the day, Raven's Fair was a grand old town. So they built a grand old theater out on Lost Lake. And as a boy, Henry only went to one show. And this is all told through flashback. So Mary Shaw comes out on stage and is like, well, where's my dummy? And I'm like, check under your seat. And she points right at Henry. And there's Billy under a seat. She asks him to bring up on stage. When he gives him back to Mary, he even turns and says, well, thank you, Henry. And Henry's like, what the fuck? And Mary Shaw's like, is your name Henry? And he's like, yeah. So he goes back to his seat and they start their act. And they start getting heckled by this boy named uh, Michael. Fuck, I should have wrote down his last name because um, that's important. <laughs> but we'll get back to that because I think I have it later. 
but they start getting heckled by this boy named Michael. As the story goes on, weeks later after the show, that boy went missing. Sometime after that, Mary Shaw was murdered, and uh, Mary's will stated that she'd be buried with all 101 of her quote-unquote children, being her dolls. And her last request to Henry's father, who was the mortician at the time, was to be made into a doll. So young Henry went to make went to have a sneak peek of this body of this Mary Shaw, and uh, he climbs up on the table and accidentally pulls her into the floor. And we get kind of a scary scene here where he looks away and looks back and she's fucking gone. He sees her over in the corner and she's quote unquote alive. And I think dad busts in, turns on the lights, and of course she's gone. So sometime after this, families in the town started to die and they were all found with their tongues cut out. Lisa was the latest. And he shows Jamie these pictures um, of everybody posed after the deaths and everything that were the, the victims of Mary Shaw. So, with this newfound information, Jamie goes out to, to Lost Lake because her home was at the theater. And uh, the behind the scenes on this was really, really neat because I didn't catch this during all that. The entry opening was the only thing that was real. The rest of that was CGI. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, the I- people walking across the bridge over the lake, the cliffs in the background, the forest in the background... I would have never thought that. I mean, I'll, I'll go back and rewatch it with that in mind, but I mean, it was, it was very, I didn't get that. Yeah, all the wide shots that were very neat considering how much money they had. But you got to think, like, so this movie was a $20 million budget. There's not that many people in it. Yeah. And uh, I don't know Donnie Wahlberg, man. No. <laughs> he had to be cheap. I mean, Ryan Quanton, I mean, it depending on when this was in True Blood, he might have cost a little bit. Yeah. I guarantee most of the money went to the fucking dolls. There's like 100 of them in the movie, right? Actually, the props department did a really fucking good job on that. They bought 80 dolls, and every one of them are exactly the same. Oh. They actually set and sculpted makeup, hair, and all that shit on the select dolls to make them look different. Okay, okay. I was just thinking, like, to me, that would have been where most of the money went, or this one CGI scene, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's a few effect shots. There's a shot in the movie that I thought was an effect shot that's fucking not. What's that? When Donnie dies. Okay. Like, that was wire work. They literally did all that in camera, and it was really him, not a stunt man. And I thought when he was falling and yanked through the curtains was CGI. Not, it's 100% all in camera. <laughs> so the CGI shot I thought was real. The real shot I thought was CGI. Right. So I'm That's bad. Cool, I right? must be bad at this, or they were good at it. But he ends up up in her bedroom, and he finds the book with the note to make the perfect doll from the opening credit. And then he turns the page, and there's news clippings about the missing boy. We get it going silent again. So this is our tell now at this point, obviously, that Mary Shaw's about to come out. He sees Mary's reflection in the mirror from this uh, vanity or whatever, and he just hightails it out of there. Quick thing I want to bring up, to get to her apartment or whatever, he has to go across this catwalk above stage, and they keep showing this bolt that's on its way to falling out, because that's important later. So meanwhile, we've got Henry finding Marion talking to Mary Shaw through Billy. He's sitting next to Lisa's coffin where they're getting ready for the viewing. So now Henry sees what's going on with Marion talking to Billy, the puppet, and it's like, I got to bury this thing. And so he's getting ready to bury it. And uh, here's Marion again in her hiding place under the house that it showed earlier. And he goes under to go get her and the door fucking slams and locks behind him. It goes silent and we see Mary right there in his face. And Henry screams. We've already heard the poem a couple of times. That's when you're fucked. Your voice is mine now. She rips out his tongue and adds it to hers because she has like this weird fucking long multi-tongue thing. Right. Now, the thing about it showing the long weird tongue thing, that's only in the unrated version. 
That's what I saw coincidentally. And that's the only version that I have. So it's weird that like what I read about what's added and what's extended in the unrated version is just dumb. We've said this many times on the podcast, including tonight, what the MPAA makes you cut out and what they let you keep doesn't make fucking sense anyways. Exactly. Or if you're Steven Spielberg, you just call him and you talk the rating back down. <laughs> so uh, Jamie goes back home to ask his dad about Michael. Now that he's got this new information from Henry, he reveals that Michael was Jamie's great uncle. Yep. The other families tracked Mary down, forced her to scream, cut out her tongue, and fucking killed her. Somebody is a Freddy Krueger fan. Hey. I'm just saying that. There you go. And so one by one, the men of the families were killed with their tongues ripped out. Then the wives, then the children. And that's why he sent Jamie away, because this is your relative and I wanted to save you. At this point, you don't need to watch anymore. If you've connected the dots, there's no point in watching anymore of the movie. <laughs> and like, I mean, everything that you're saying, and I'm just like intently listening to you on a film that I just watched recently. And I'm like, so much of this was good. That's why I said, that's why I opened with, I love this on paper. Like, I really like the idea of this movie. It was just poor execution. I just, yeah, I, I really think me figuring out the gotcha moment killed it for me. Because yep. here's the thing. I didn't shit on the movie. I haven't. I've actually been pretty quiet because I can't make fun of it. It's just kind of there. <laughs> yeah. Like the movie's just there. It's made by two men that I respect their work and I like, and it's just like, they just didn't do it this time. Yeah. Well, this is one of those that when, you know, we talk about a movie and like, well, what'd you think of Josh? And I'm like, eh, it's meh. Like this is one of the meh movies, but I really, really like the idea of it. You know, a good comparison is uh Halloween too. Like John Carpenter being forced to make it. And it's just there. Yeah. Like there's nothing good. You know, there's nothing bad about it. Nothing good about it. Is it better if you splice them together and watch them all as one movie? I've tried it several (laughs) times. I don't know. I I guess it is kind of like that. But what's different there, though, is the studio forced John Carpenter. Yeah. I guess technically, I mean, it's not like James and Lee made themselves do it necessarily. Their agents did say you need to pick up a second gig in case Saul falls through. Yeah, well, and they were new into this, so they they painted themselves into that corner to rush this out. So I'm assuming that means they, like, went around at the the film festival, like, who who needs a script made? We got this, right? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, no, 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 it wouldn't have been that, though, because... Well, he said he had the idea for the Creepy Doll movie. Yeah, so James Wan did, like, the story, right? And then Lee Winnell did the screenplay. Exactly. And so that just means they were like, hey, we're the Saul guys. Do you want to pay us to make a horror movie? I got a, I got a second idea. Is that what I'm guessing they did? So I guess, I mean, it wasn't the studio, but I guess their agent kind of forced them, but fuck. Well, and then there's the other, there's the second half of it where allegedly once the project was going, studio involvement and heavy rewriting of the script took place. But by the time we get to the movie, I kind of don't buy that, but we'll, we'll go over that when we get to it. (laughs) So as Jamie is going to leave his dad's house, detective Lipton, Donnie is there. He says he went and dug up all the graves and they were all empty. And by all the graves, I mean all the puppet graves. I think it's interesting. The detective who clearly has not believed his story the entire fucking movie is like, I want to go dig up all these graves. I I don't know why he did it. And that's where the interesting part is, because he ends up saying in that scene that he asked around town and nobody's heard of Mary Shaw. And Jamie's like, because they're all afraid of her. But you you get it right then that there's this inkling that detective lipton believes and you have to think that there's an inkling for the third act to make sense that's right i mean i could buy that he's like man this story sounds like bullshit but i just believe (laughs) this guy for some reason i'll go dig up these graves to at least prove to me that he's fucking crazy yeah right and because he's not jamie isn't that charismatic he's not that believable as from a cop's point of view it's the husband because it's always the husband like i don't i don't buy it so uh ella interrupts them with a call for jamie and it's Henry, or at least something that kind of sounds like Henry. 
and uh, says that he can prove that he didn't kill Lisa, but he needs to come to the theater right now. I think Jamie throws Donnie on the floor to get away and goes out to his car, and then Donnie gives chase. So, I want to say he's like, look, come with me. I got proof. And he's like, yeah, yeah you got proof. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't believe him, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, well, you got to come somewhere with me first because he's going to cuff him when he throws him on the yeah. floor. And so at the theater, Jamie discovers this hidden room, which is actually a really cool optical illusion with the vertical wallpaper. So you're looking at it and it just looks like a bunch of vertical artwork on the wallpaper, but it's, it's one wall is like three feet behind the other wall. And he goes around this couch and just disappears inside the wall. So he tells Donnie to come with him and remember whatever happens, don't scream. They open up into this big hidden room and Donnie finds a doll on the floor and he picks it up and he says, if I see one more of these things and he throws it and it hits this curtain that starts to fall like down this long wall and it's revealed that it's all these fucking boxes all filled (laughs) with the dolls and see it's little shit like that that I really like about the movie, even though it's played crappily by Wahlberg. Um, (laughs) They got the wrong Wahlberg. Actually, Mark's not a very good actor either. See, and that's the thing is like, I'm not trying to shit on Donnie because like Mark Wahlberg. Okay. The happening. It's so fun to watch him try four brothers. The big hit. He's good in some films. There's some stuff that he's fucking great in, but at any rate, so we see all the fucking puppets all but one. Got one empty box. (laughs) That's Billy number 50 something. You didn't write down the number. I didn't write down the fucking number. They look over and discover the quote unquote Michael doll. And it is the boy Michael's corpse that has been turned into a marionette. It goes silent and all the dolls in the boxes start turning their heads and their eyes slowly to the left to look in the same direction. Hands down the creepiest scene in the movie. Yes. And there's this clown doll that they're looking at over in this rocking chair. We had a quick wide shot of the two walking towards it. And that's where you see OG Billy from Saw in the foreground leaning up against a post. I didn't catch it. Yeah. He's right there in the bottom of the frame. So they go over to it and Jamie asks Mary Shaw what she wants. She says to silence those who have silenced me. And then we get a quick flashback of Michael with Mary and like Mary turning him into quote unquote the perfect doll. And it even says so hard to construct the perfect doll. And Jamie asks why she killed Lisa. And she's like, come closer and I'll tell you. And all this is coming through the clown doll that has red hair on the sides and a spiral on the forehead remember that when we talk about a certain music box so come closer and i'll tell you and jamie leans in real close and the clown says you weren't the last ashen sorry that's the last name they share you weren't the last ashen the last ashen was inside her of course you know fucking as you said staple in your head to the floor with it (laughs) so it was really cool that was actually like a really cool idea but like as soon as she started doing the pillow thing i was like she's pregnant like yeah, at the beginning like, so it, <laughs> cut that shit out they but, honestly could have not had the pillow and the stuff like none of that none of the mirror none of the rub in the yep, belly none of the pillow of that and just said it and i would have been like oh fuck and they would have got me but that's not what yep. happened what's neat is it's a it pulls out a little bit and you can see that mary shaw is behind the doll and talking through it literally from behind its head and her tongue goes through the back of the head and out and licks jamie's face and that may even be one of the things that was cut from the r version which i don't understand so anyways donnie's like fuck this shit he starts shooting and uh <laughs> so mary he shoots that doll and so mary's spirit starts jumping from doll to doll and donnie starts shooting he doesn't have enough ammo for this, obviously, because he's got a shotgun. Jamie's like has a stroke of genius. He's holding a fucking lantern and throws it at the wall to set them all on fire. They take off. And as they go to cross the catwalk, the bolt we've seen a couple of times gives way. Donnie falls. He fucking screams. Mary Shaw comes out of the shadows and grabs him and pulls him off. And then I think we see him 
back through the curtains again with his mouth open and his tongue ripped off. And his body hits the floor and his razor is <laughs> on the floor next to him and shit. That's the only reason I had to bring up that he shaves all the time. I get the running gag. Like, it just seems so dumb earlier in the movie when you keep seeing him doing it that the payoff isn't worth it. It's like, oh, that's how you tried to explain that next. Makes me sound like an asshole, but I'm just saying. So Jamie, <laughs> Could have been like a vibrator that fell on the back of his pants. That would have been kind of funny, right? Yes, that would have felt more like a trauma movie, but that would have been okay, too. Um, so Jamie ends up falling off the catwalk, but he doesn't scream. I think he even covers his mouth. He falls through the floor into the lake below and escapes. He finally realizes that Billy's the, the last doll. You know, it wasn't in there. We didn't shoot it or burn it. So he goes to Henry's. He finds Marion crying and holding dead Henry and ask her where Billy is. Cause that's right. That's where the last place he saw it was, was there with the mortician. She says, Mr. Ashton took it. And I think she even brings up something about him walking away with it or something like that. And he's like, that's impossible. So he makes his way home. He goes in, it goes dead silent. He starts hearing voices of the dead. He finds Billy and Mary jumps out at him, like out of the shadows or some shit. I don't remember. He throws Billy in the already lit fireplace. So Mary Shaw is dead. You know, like, Last doll, no place for you to hide. Legend over. He sees his dad slumped over in his chair. Actually, he's not slumped over. He just looks incapacitated in some way. And he goes over the chair and he's like, Dad? And he, I think he goes to shake him and he slumps over, revealing the cavity in his back and the back <laughs> of his head. And this is what sucks because we get the bump up in the score. We get a quick cut recap and it's done in the shutter, stuttered, jittery, editing, framing, pacing, it is just like the end of Saul. Like, beat for fucking beat, the same as the <laughs> end of Saul. That's what sucks. The cavity in his back, of course, reveals controls that he's a puppet. And we see all the pieces getting put together that Ella was controlling dear old dad every time because she was always right next to him with her hand on his back. And that he must have been the perfect doll. Ella appears behind him. She turns into Mary Shaw. Jamie screams. Credits. Now, who's the dummy? There's an alternate ending where, like, she hits him and knocks him out or some stupid shit. But, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And I did like the not a happy ending, like, the second time, right? Love that. Yeah. I, I always mean, love that. There's a lot about this movie to love, but that was that was another thing similar to Saul. Like, the, the good guys did not fucking win at the end. Saul, you get a built-in cop-out, though, because it's all based on choice. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I hate to say it. I want to see Flanagan remake this movie. I know, right? <laughs> I don't know, just the way you handled the fucking mirror and Oculus and stuff. Like, things <laughs> didn't have to get, like, hammered down in your face. That, like, you knew it was going to end this way. And, I don't know, I'd, like, even in Oculus, like, I assumed they were going to make it out right. And I was surprised. I guess it was surprised to me that he didn't win in this. Yeah. It's interesting because this movie has that terrible dime a dozen PG-13 horror movie vibe that so many of them came out in theaters for, you know, whatever. It absolutely does. Without being, because it had to have been rated R, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've said it so many times. I don't want to staple your head to the carpet. But you get two, <laughs> two guys that have already made a successful film together make this movie right after that one. And it's so bad. And honestly, I would have immediately counted them out after this. Yeah. And, that, and that's what seemed exactly like what was going to happen. And then it was followed up by a non-horror, as far as Juan goes, followed up by a non-horror movie that did even worse than this one. Yeah, and like I've never seen that one. Neither it's have I. Not my my thing, and and we're covering just horror movies on here. But I don't know. Like I guess if there's no soul in something, you can tell. And that's the thing. I don't want to say there's no soul in it, but there's. I mean, I, he's basically said there was no soul in it. 
well, you both can, of them have, right? Like they're like, this is what happens when you're forced by a gun to make a movie. Yeah. And I think I'm going to contradict myself in saying this. It's like the shell of a movie with so much good stuff in it. But yeah, the substance isn't there. The meat isn't there. I just think it's funny. Like as much as you hear me shit on movies that I don't like, I mean, you guys just listened to Poltergeist too, right? <laughs> um, I can't shit on this movie. Like I can't say it's a good movie either, but I can't shit on it. Yeah. It's meh. There's, oh, what might've been. Right. Which sucks. <laughs> but out of all of his horror films, this is the only one I can say that about. I know you disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. I hate I that can't. Josh disagrees. Um, oh. I also hate to tell you that you're not going to get to hear what Josh disagrees about on this episode. He's killing me, man. He's chaining <laughs> me to a pipe in the shithouse right now. Shut up, you. Because um, <laughs> this is actually going to be James Wan part one. And you have to wait until next time to catch James Wan Part 2, where we'll go into his two franchises that he started, Insidious and Conjuring. But as we're going bi-weekly, and as we're trying to plan things out in case we want to reformat, you got to make sure that you send us comments and suggestions to sbspodcast at gmail.com. And please start following us on sbspodcast at Instagram and Twitter so we can start sharing interesting pictures and, and behind-the-scenes things that we find for these movies. Keep spreading the word. Keep coming back. And thanks, guys. Game over.